Welcome, guys. Good to see you guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Is Keisha here? No, Keisha is not here. Did anybody talk to uh did anybody talk to Keisha? I know some I've been very busy, so I haven't had I didn't get a chance to follow up with um with Keisha. Did anybody get a chance to talk to Keisha to Keisha? Find out how she was doing. Probably somebody should just shoot her a text to find out how she's doing. Sorry, I put a note in our group, but she did not respond, so I, I figure she's still Yeah, out. Oh, we can't. Okay. If she hasn't responded. Here we go. This is what I was looking for. Find find on. Uh, I'll share my screen with you guys. Today we're going to be breezing through. We have a lot to cover. We have the presentation. Carrot. That one is that way now. Yes. There you go. Um, by the way, do you guys have audible access to audibles and nooks in Jamaica? Audible. Yes, right? Don't we have an we have audible? What say you guys? Current slideshow. By the way, you know, when we started Caribbean Thought, can you get, let me just do a check. You guys can hear me, correct? I can hear. Great, great. When we did, um, there was one lecture that we did, we talked about um, critical thinking, part of the, the work of, of this course, Caribbean Thought involves critical thinking and we asked what is critical thinking how is it is important to the study of caribbean thought um those are some of the initial questions we said in terms of conceptualizing the course what is the what is the caribbean what is the socioeconomic context the the caribbean is an invention of the 20th century by the way oh i'm sure i just saw that i've asked that question and um and chapter three of neoliberalism, chapter three of, um, of neoliberalism, if I, I bring up that for you. Um, chapter three of neoliberalism, of the book of neoliberalism, I'm reading from, um, gives you a brief overview of Jamaica's sociopolitical economic context Sociopolitical economic context, because one, I think, oh, that was lecture two. 
we talk about conceptualizing the course, what is Caribbean and what is the socioeconomic context? And of course, we kept driving home the Caribbean is an invention of the 20th century. And so, and then we were, and then you notice it is like we are constructing an argument, a dissertation, a thesis, a paper. We thought in lecture two, we said, we asked the question, what is the Caribbean? What is the socioeconomic context? And then of course we talked about, and again, I said to you, the, re, the, the, if the, the syllabus is rich in resources and links to resources that answers this question. I, I put everything in that syllabus so that you guys, when you guys, if, and the links to the syllabus, if you click on some of the links, it takes you to a whole world of information that deals with some of the questions we're asking, especially the preface and the first chapters in the Caribbean Reader. And I keep referring to that because that is really, that provides some real meat for you guys. But it talks about the, we are an invention, the Caribbean being an invention, and then, and then, and how are we to, and how are we to, in, how are we to reinvent ourselves in the 21st century? We think about the future. And of course, you, we kept driving home this invention and then, laying out the argument in the course, showing this invention and the consequences of, of the invention, even going to as far as beginning with the issue of identity and then and challenging Arawaks to Africa and then this issue of identity and the importance of identity in reclaiming heritage. We went as far as doing it, looking at how countries are, the arguments that goes into creating and shaping the world in a sense, the, the, the Americas, Columbus, from Columbus coming in 1492 and then later in 1494 to spread Christianity, so he says, but first discrediting the any, but to spread Christianity and to find gold, but also part of that process involves as we move from the 1400s to the 1500s to discredit discredit the people these people um to discredit the natives in 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 um in the americas involving the west indies and the caribbean there was no west indies it wasn't covered and discredit the people of 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 africa redefining them as primitive redefining them as devilish without religion without sophistication without governance probably as a monster in a sense and then using that to, and of course, coupled with that, the invention of the idea of race, which was never, which never existed before in the 1600s. Okay. And using that as a justification to enslave a whole set of people. And then, okay, as because of course, by the time we get to the 15 to the 1600s, there was a need for sugar. There was a need, I mean, the sugar was big, sugar was king and capitalists, or the dominant class, which involves the dominant class involved the nobles and the and the king and the monarchy at the time, whatever the, those the, the nobles of the world which formulate part of the dominant class, including the, the, the Catholic Church and so on. Because Spain this, please remember that in the 1600s and so on, part of the Dark Ages, part of the period just before you get to the Enlightenment, that was part of the Dark Ages. The, 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 prince, the kings were seen as princes, in a sense, and they served the emperor, who was the emperor, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, 
And they were part of the mission. So Christianity, they came to spread Christianity, in a sense, okay? And discredited these people and justified this, the, the, the mistreatment of these people. And of course, anyways, and then by 1600, sugar, they needed labor, a willing labor force, a labor, a willing labor force, which, and, and the labor force was slave labor to realize the kind of profit that they are looking for. And of course, and reorient uh, the Americas, create a whole letter, new peoples, hybridized peoples who are, in a sense, detached from anything. And we talk about the strategy over the years to, 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 to discredit, to dominate. And of course, we look at Haiti and the issue and how country and how the dominant how the global north countries or former colonial masses continue to dominate and in terms of penetration foreign interference through debt through structural adjustment and i didn't get i didn't read um um ramesh ramsaran's book ramesh ramsaran on the issue of what is the caribbean and he said in ramesh, ramesh ramsaran he said in he said the structural adjustment issue is not surprisingly one surrounded by intense controversy and emotion. The structural adjustment issue, structural adjustment, the system, the process that the policy, structural adjustment was a policy, a policy that was utilized by the United Nations, by the World Bank, by members of the Washington Consensus to this to liberalize Caribbean economies so that they can penetrate and continue their dominance. Structural adjustment. But it was, but structural adjustment was possible through debt as a result of crisis. A crisis that the, the new nations in the Caribbean did not prepare or plan for. They did not prepare or plan for when they got the new nation and everybody went to go it alone. Structural adjustment was a policy to the structure. And that's why you have to think in terms of strategy and in terms of policy as well. Think about, that's why I said, as people of the Caribbean, as academics, we have to hold, and as, as people at Jamaica Theological Seminary, uh, we are theologians in a sense, we, are, in a, we have to keep, we are citizens, responsible citizens. We have, to, we have to hold our government accountable. And how do we do that? The Bible said because of a lack of knowledge, people perish. I agree with that. Okay. We have to become aware. We talk about critical thinking. Part of Caribbean thought is critical thinking. So when you so the so you have to study history. If you don't study, if if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you are going. So that is some of the basis of Caribbean thought. If you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. And you make the same mistakes that we made in the past. You watch the, the film Life and Death. Okay, so so it's very important to uh, to to be students of history, and also as we are being made aware of these things, we also want other people to be made aware of these things, reflecting on one's past and history. But so structural adjustment. So you want to find you want to be you want to be aware of policy. Structural adjustment was a policy. So the the, the, the structural adjustment issue or policy issue is not surprisingly one surrounded by intense controversy and emotion, especially for people in the Caribbean and people who are largely and mostly affected by structural adjustment. 
Now, this is a very important issue talking about what is the Caribbean if it's an invention. And what is the socioeconomic context? We talk about that comes from also the invention in one sense. Okay, but of course we we have we say we are hybridized. The invention, we, we talk about the uniqueness of the Caribbean people to, to carve themselves the, a future. But anyway, but on this particular issue, the structural adjustment issue is not surprisingly one surrounded by intense controversy and emotion. Intense controversy and emotion. This is because, and by the way, this is on the syllabus. I added this book is on the syllabus and it's available in the Caribbean. And it is because it, now why? Why is the issue of structural adjustment? And notice he said, this in, in, in this he said the structural adjustment issue is not is not surprisingly one surrounded by intense controversy and emotion especially for you and i this is because it does not concern it does not concern simply this is because it does not concern itself simply with economic policies we're talking about structural adjustment. It does not concern itself simply with economic, with economic policies or improving government performance, improving government performance. But it brings into question basic economic philosophy and ideology. Again, again, the issue of the structural adjustment issue. The, this particular policy here is it they say that it's 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 full of controversy and emotion because it does not concern itself simply with economic policies or with improving government performance i'm going to say that again it does not concern itself simply with improving government performance but when you watch the film life and death and so on that is what we thought that is what you would think the kind the policy to liberalize liberalize to free up yes the policy to liberalize facilitated by the facade sorry the argument or the ulterior motive what is an ulterior motive the ulterior motive an ulterior motive it is the motive that you don't see so you i mean so when you study policy when you study decision making within this competitive world you you always want to ask in whose interest and for whose benefit because we want to get at the alternative motive sorry the ulterior motive because we are critical thinkers and and and, and scholars who have a history of dealing with a past that has escaped us based largely on some untruths or some lie or okay yes <laughs> So you want to, so ulterior motive, there are people, ulterior motive, especially when you understand that we live in a competitive world. We live in a competitive world. So, so it, it, it brings into question basic economic philosophy and ideology, and may also involve the effective transfer of decision, of, listen, what does it involve, this, this structural adjustment? It, it, it says, it brings into question, you know, this is a challenge that he's challenging this whole structural adjustment, this whole policy that started from 1944 when, when they were 
or 47 or whatever they get 44 when they were bringing when the world war sorry when united nations was being constructed okay it brings into question it in other words it challenges this ideology that oh we are all about improving government performance in these places because what okay but it brings into question basic economic philosophy and ideology and may also involve and may also involve the effective transfer of decision making from local hands that is absolutely important it involves what structural adjustment the effective structural adjustment was an effective transfer an effective strategy of transfer involving the power domain involving decision making here it i said to you here it is the caribbean the west indies former colonial countries became independent in the 60s or moved between moving from the 1950s into the 60s probably the early 70s for india got their independence celebrating this independence yes they are independent nations now yes they can self-determine there's this issue and we talk about by the way the issue of sovereignty and i played that tape with the south african with the south african prime um foreign minister and this um excuse me i apologize about that questioning questioning this whole the facade of this internationality and how people must some people follow the law others don't but this is quite powerful they are here they are celebrating oh yes we're going to be new nations independent nations for those people who got it ceremonially but by then little did they know what was brewing a effective policy came about of structural adjustment the ex he went on to say that the experience of a declining standard of living can be traumatic a declining standard of living as it is not easy for individuals to reverse life cycles tied into long commitments long commitments that may not be easy to change so you know when you look at what's going on in history in in, in haiti which as i said again haiti is a case is a case study or an example it is it is it is a policy it is the policy and the strategy and it's not just a new policy that's the that is how people from 1800s to now and i'm saying to you the caribbean nationalists did not study haiti and what happened in haiti and how their independence and freedom was affected by strategy of debt and what that meant and so on So of course we ask the question, what is the Caribbean? And, and we say that it is an invention. In a sense, yes, that is what we mean when we say when you study these, when you start. And by the way, um, Edward Siaga in the last class I read, I have to, I'll show you the. I mean, Chantel, are you in class today, Chantel? Chantel, there is a uh, there is an article written by. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Okay, there is an, I need an article that you have as well. I think I sent it to you. 
Edward Siaga did a paper. Edward okay, Siaga. I have it. You have it? Yes, sir. Right. Can you send it to the students as well? Because he talked okay. about middle income countries. Um, let me stop here for a second because I just happened to remember while talking to you guys about this. Um, um, let me just look at it real quickly because let me see if I could find it. Edward. Ah, I found it. But if but if you have it there, um, you can say Edward Siaga, you can send it to the group or email them. Um, but but I think I can find it. Edward Siaga present. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. That's Edward Said on Orientalism. Um, DLS Foundation one. OK, so Edward Siaga. Um, here, Caribbean Thought Week three. Ah, here we go. Edward Siaga did a paper. Um, and I'm going to share my screen again with you guys. Guide my thoughts, oh God. Guide my thoughts today as I on as I share um, with my students on concepts and issues that are important to Caribbean, to peoples who have been vulnerable through various strategies and international deals. May you open our minds. May you give us wisdom. May you direct my facilitation of this course today as we delve into important concepts that speak to issues of ethics and human values. Because this course is part, yes, we said it's, a, it's part of the department of, oh, it's part of the humanities. And humanities, in a sense, delves is part of liberal studies, or well, not necessarily, well, liberal studies and liberal arts, because when we talk about, when we humanize something, you know, in, okay, the humanize something, in a, we, what we're talking, we, talk, we are dealing with issues of ethics and human value. And we talk about life. Life is about people and how people relate. We say life is about people and how people relate, oh God. And, we, and, and, and life is what you make it and some of the dynamics of our society. We talk about, and the black position, the, what's the black position? When you study societies all over the world, uh, who, uh, who, who was it, CLR James? Um, can't remember, it wasn't CLR James. Was it CLR, no, no, Walter Rodney? Who was it that wrote, looked at Walter Rodney? How, how Europe underdeveloped Africa how Europe underdeveloped Africa through strike. And I talk about how the same deal that these Europeans, oh God, made with one African country, they made with the other African country. I mean, they didn't know that they were making deals. So they made deals with that one try. And 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 oh, and and if I and my and I will tell my students that Africa never considered themselves as black or white or they, how could black brothers enslave the other black brothers. No, Africans did not consider was not, they were just as competitive. They didn't think that they didn't, they, they, they didn't think in terms of race. They thought in terms of country, in terms of nation. And by the way, we will not do same the same, use the same mistake and call African tribes, tribes in a sense. When we think about tribal, tribe is a secondary word. It's language to put down. Oh, the Africans can't have tribes. They never had, they, sorry, they never had nations. They have never had a system of governance. No, they had tribes. We brought governance and nationhood to them. Continuing the narrative. And of course, 
Uh, Walter Rodney talk about how, Af how Europe underdeveloped Africa and how and what and how and, and so on. We talk about this invention. So even some African nations as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you as we delve into the course, not just this course and throughout the cement, we pray that you will awaken our spirits and our minds. Push us, O oh God, to understand the world. And the Bible said, you said, Lord, because of a lack of knowledge, people perish. And this course helps to facilitate the critical thinking that will avert that lack of knowledge. And of course, there are people who says that all truth is God truth. In fact, part of the theology of some of oh, some Caribbean peoples that has been inherited from a colonization, a colonization of privilege, which continues even today among Caribbean peoples, privileging certain aspects of other things. Believe that all truth is God's truth. But we know, Lord God, that you, but there are some things in society that we have to study outside of biblical scriptures that supports the scripture of love and togetherness. You know, the Bible talked about love and togetherness, but people turn it around. So help us to see, because when they brought Christianity, they brought the Bible to us to help us to be weary and give us wisdom and knowledge and the passion. So guide us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's continue with our class. We said that I was making a point. Let me continue talking about, by the way, we said, uh, let's talk about um, the, uh, the, the, I want to share my screen with you because I was talking about this invention and talking about Ram, um, Ramesh F. Ramsawan, Ramesh F. Ramsawan in the book, The Challenge of Structural Adjustment in the Commonwealth Caribbean. That book is actually on your syllabus. The Challenge of Structural Adjustment in the Commonwealth Caribbean. I read from a little bit from that just, just now. Now, there, I'm going to share my screen with you on a very important issue. Why is my screen coming up like that? Share my screen. Um, here we go. Share. Now, this was written in 1983, Article 4, by Edward Siaga, the or, uh, former prime minister of Jamaica, Edward Siaga. And it was entitled... Um, a model of development for the middle level country. A model for development for middle level country. That's, um, that's um, Edward Siaga. Many people believe that he was, excuse me, he brought Reaganomics or trickle down. He believed in trickle down, trickle down economics. Trickle down, I mean, you know, we Jamaicans, we like to play. We like to, we, we use prose or pun. We use a lot of pun or play upon words. Trickle down economics. We say, oh, trick down. <laughs> trick us economics. Trick us economics. That's why I love Jamaicans and how we speak and our cliches and 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 binocular and words and so trickle down economics. We say trick us economics. Trick us. In other words, you pop up the rich, oh the wealth would pass down to the poor. But how much passed down? Now uh, listen to what Edward Siaga says in the beginning, in the opening. And when you read, when you read, when you are doing an academic course especially at the collegiate level where you have a lot of reading there's a way you read you don't want you don't you do not read everything in the book especially if it's a recommended reading and you have a lot to do you can read it later on okay because when you pick pick up a book 
the, uh, if it's written well, then you should be able to know what the book is talking about and the assumptions. Now you can follow the deeper levels in the book, but when you start, the title of the book tells a lot about the book. That when you pick up a book, you want to study the cover. Yeah, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but no, you do not. But you, but the, but in in academia, the the book cover tells a lot about the author or about the subject matter. So when you pick up a book or any, you want to study, you want to take, you want to pay attention to. The cover, the cover is very important, okay? Especially, it's written in New Direction, and, you, and um, what kind of magazine is that? Of course, it's a capitalist paper, of course. I mean, but a, mad, a model of development for middle-level country. I would, what's middle-level country? Like Argentina and so on and so forth, those middle-level, at the time. A model of development. So, of course, he's going to talk about part of Jamaica's problem is a developmental issue. Edward Siaga talked about, again, we didn't get to develop in the 70s. But here is Edward Siaga in the 1980s. He's, of course, the 1980s was, it, oh my, it's tribal politics, but look at everything, three piece suit and everything. But, okay, everything looked nice and dandy, but in the 80s, oh, the politics of, mm, was, 1980s, 81 and 83 was violent times, but look at him walking. Anyways, but part of the part of the Caribbean problem is development. And I said to you the last class, development is required for growth. You cannot have economic growth without economic development. And, and I said to you just now, when you pick up a piece of material, a book or whatever, you want to study the cover. Okay, the cover is important. And here it is, is providing a model of development for the middle level country. Yeah, because that means that why would he be he's Listen, he's providing a, a model. And earlier I talked about what? Structural adjustment. But structural adjustment continued even beyond the 1980s. Yet here is, here, here is, here is Mr. Siaga. And this is a speech. He gave a speech and, it, and, and, and they wrote in an article. A model for development for the middle-level country. Let's, let's look at it. He said, the following was, was excerpted from the Mordecai Wyatt Johnson Memorial Lecture by the Prime Minister of Jamaica, October 7, 1982. The lecture series now in its fifth year is presented annually in honor of the 13th president of Howard University. He says, he begins, Mr. 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 Siaga, I am delighted to be back with you, particularly so because of the special ties this distinguished university has developed with Jamaica and Jamaicans over many years. A great many of our sons and daughters have received and are receiving their professional education here. And I dare say that at least 90% of our dentists have been trained at your world famous dental school. In 1982, 90, by, by 1982, 90% of Jamaican dentists were trained by, by, were trained where? At Howard University in the US. Okay. Um, anyways, we move on. I, I, I'll continue. Um, I'm going to cut some things out here, blah, 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 blah. He says, I wish to talk to you. I wish to talk to you. So when you read, of course, I said you read the cover and the, yeah, who's the author. You want to find out about the author. What is his ideology? Where did he go to school? Uh, what is his philosophy? Blah, 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 blah. That gives you some, that helps you too with your reading. Of, the, of this particular person and, his, and her, his ideas and so on, that helps to give an understanding of the book that you're about to read. But anyways, but we know about Edward Siaga already. 
He says, I wish to talk to you about the strategy. Notice the word strategy. How many of us think in terms of strategy? And I'm so if 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 we if you guys don't take away anything from this class or from this sorry from this from this course or from me, it is one thing is that we begin to see we talk about the Caribbean being an invention. You also want to think about strategy, okay? And with all that we have said, when you make something in whose interest for whose benefit. Hmm? We said that it's an invention for who, okay, the society for in, and when they study sociology or society, you saw in whose been interest and in, and in whose benefit. Anyways, he says, I wish to talk to you about the strategy, which I believe can best attain a quality of life for the peoples of middle level countries of the developing world, of the developing world, a quality of life. So he said, I want to put forward a strategy which I believe. So therefore, you want to read the first, the preface. When you get a book, you read the preface. The pre I never, you know, when I was younger, I never thought about reading prefaces. You go, you want people go straight to chapter one. Uh-uh. You start reading from the cover. And of course, and you read, you want to read the preface and the, and the introduction and get a sense of the argument because the preface and the introduction have the sense, the argument and outlines the argument from the, from the, as the hypothesis or in a, in a, in a kind of logic, in an inductive or de deductive logical way. First premise, second, uh, and um, supporting, supporting sentence, supporting sentence conclusion. And in a sense, the whole book is, is structured like that. And then when you go to chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, he lays out the argument and bring other analysis. And then in the conclusion, and, and so therefore when you read a book, you don't have, uh, especially when you're, you're constrained by time, you want to read the preface, public, the introduction, of course. And then from that, you only probably read the first couple lines of each chapter, the first couple lines, and maybe and skim through to see if there is any major. And then you, okay, but that's if you go straight to the conclusion. But, and then when you're finished, and of course, you can, you can do a quick skim and highlight some more, you can go back. That, that's important. Anyways, let's continue. He says he's talking to us about strategy. What kind of strategy? A strategy in which he believes that Jamaicans, the developing countries, can attain a quality of the Caribbean, a quality of life for the peoples of middle-level countries. That means if if this is 1982, and Jamaica and many middle country, um, economies, countries' economies, got independent or became became new nations, say in the 1960s, speed forward by 1980. Development is still not happening in the Caribbean. Because he's, okay. And here is a, here is Mr. Siaga talking about strategy. He says, the jargon of today's media easily deposes of the geopolitical differences among countries by a simplified classification which labels these countries as part of the East Wing struggle the north-south struggle, east, sorry, the east-west struggle. In other words, we talk about the east, we talk about uh, the classific, ge geopolitical classification. He said the jargon of today's media easily disposes of the geopolitical differences among countries. We talk about what, what is the geopolitical differences among countries in the 1980s, the, how people, it's the east versus the west. 
or the north versus the south but can i tell you it is still happening today but we're talking about east west whether we're talking about political the east socialist or communist the west but what's the west capitalism okay talking about capitalism east west struggle and of course when you watch who shot the sheriff but bob marley says we're not marxist or capitalist we're rasta that you see he he was talking within that put up that, that that kind of geopolitical milieu that people were caught which people were caught between the east and the west that and to the new nations the new nations stem after world war um two and so on you know going all the way to the 1980s of course we talk about the the cold war and so on and so forth the new nations were caught between that that geopolitical crisis even up to today the east west rivalry the east west rivalry and dominant and ideologized the east as capitalism fight with communism and today is as if there is has been a resurgence of that because many people had thought that capitalism had won and communism or marxism or socialism was no more and 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 the, and the western world westernized countries and and so on and so forth made it sure that those in in the in, in these parts of the world that try to 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 be to adopt a, an eastern kind of political system they made it bad for them through embargoes or penetration and so on and so forth and many people okay to force a narrative as we said the last time so many people thought by the 1990s the early, that oh communism had lost and and uh, capitalism is now the big thing but now you what's happening in, in the 20th century what's happening in the 20th century in fact last class i i gave you guys a a, a, a poll and we asked the question what is the greatest threat to humanity today and of the four on, 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 in terms of we provided four concept main concerns that people cite as the greatest threats to humanity and of, of the four or five whatever russia and china for some people pose the greatest threat i mean some people said artificial intelligence for 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 the class that we had you guys saw, saw russia and china as secondary okay maybe because of where you guys are living in jamaica and so on but in the us and these parts of the world for them it is china and russia China and Russia. So here it's China and Russia is rising again, in a sense, and this new populism and so on and so forth. So, you know, we see the cyclical nature of life. So the East versus the West struggle is rearing itself again. So communism, so we thought communism was dead. Absolutely not, it seems, or or not, I shouldn't say communism, but totalitarianism in a sense. Uh, or if it's not about east versus west it's about the global north or the global we're talking about here we talk about the global north versus the global south dynamic or both while this simplification while this simplification is not convenient it represents an insufficiency of insight into the nature of the political and economic the economic space between opposite poles within this space is in fact a number of quite distinct types of socioeconomic models reflecting transitional stages of development i wish to draw attention to a category of countries which is which is emerging as a group with its own character and international significance in the world community 
We live in a world of mass communication, which deals in containerized categories, mass consumption with containerized categories, and to establish a separate identity entails being significant enough to get your own container. This is the predicament of identity definition, controlling a group of countries merged within the broad span of third world nations. I refer to them as middle level countries, but I have seen other names attached as they gradually attain international recognition. While it is not true, sorry, while it is true that this group also occupies the middle income strata among nations and could be identified by per capita income criteria, a better way can be made in terms of geographical spread and economic structure. The miracle growth countries of Southeast Asia, the Republic of Korea, Singapore, hit Singapore notice in the 1950s, 60s, we were, we were in a sense going in an upward direction with these countries. But somewhere down the line, they left us. And here is Edward Siaga talking about that, talking about how these, the miracle growth countries of Singapore, Taiwan, Malay, um, Malaya or Malaysia, are the front runners of the group and its most successful achievers. But other middle-level countries abound in the Caribbean, Barbados, Bahamas, Trinidad and Tobago, and Jamaica. Indeed, most of the Caribbean islands, there are others in Oceania, in the South Pacific, as well as in Latin America. As a group, these countries stand midway on the ladder of development, midway up to two decades ago, up to two, de up to two decades ago, they were midway. These countries, that was no man's land. That, that too, too high up the ladder to, to receive full treatment in the bounty of aid flows. Too low down. To, so they were too high to get aid, but they were too low to attract serious attention from external private investor, investment resources. So these countries, middle income countries, including Jamaica, Bahamas, Barbados. So they, they, they were too, they suffer from serious attention from external, from private investment. They weren't getting the kind of private investment resources that they needed to, to develop. But of course, why would they? Why should they get private investment from the global north if that means that they are going to outcompete them? Then he said, but it is the peculiar structure of their economies that most clearly sets this group apart in the same society and the same economy. Different, um, different tiers of development exist side by side, being midway on the development ladder brings with it an internal as well as and an external dynamic, which has the effect of producing in the same country some sectors which show the sophistication and complexity of first. So in, in the first world development, while others remain underdeveloped. In, he, listened, he said, in the same country, some sectors which show the sophistication and complexity of first world development, there are others that remain underdeveloped. He, says, the, he, said, he goes on to say that the bustling urban industrial sector with modern, with modern facilities and amenities, on the one hand, the less responsive, sometimes even dormant rural agriculture on the other. Anyways, 
But let me wrap up by saying, he says this, the system must devise policies to continue to stimulate rapid urban growth and generate greater responses from the rural sector. He said that there has been an over-reliance on industrial development and heavy inputs into the modern sector to distort the benefits of development process, okay? But anyways, we, we, we won't be able to go into him, but because this is not what I'd expected, but that's Edward Siago right there at the school. Um, he says a model for development is as good as what it does to enhance the opportunity and welfare of the people. In fact, one of his most statement, famous statements was the um, structural adjustment at a human pace, at a human pace. And then somebody else went on to say, with a human face. Structural adjustment with a human at a human pace. And then somebody else went on to say, structural adjustment with a human face. But um, uh, uh, so anyways, but you guys have, can go, can read this article, quite interesting, just um, a model for development for middle income countries. Um, let me stop share. And then let me go back to share again. Uh, where was I? Anyway, I started talking about the whole issue of what is the Caribbean, because I said that we did this, looking at the importance of doing critical thinking and talking about laying the groundwork, talking about this invention and what that means and the consequences of that and the, and the historical, the journey of that. Where is the Caribbean and are the Caribbean people American? We thought we had the UHIS talking about that, talking about the issue of identity and so on and so forth. And we already covered that. What is critical thinking and how, and how is it important to the study of Caribbean thought? We did a whole, I won't re repeat that part. And do we have any, any urban heritages in the Caribbean? Um, so those were some important, um, this was the present, and we did a presentation. We defined critical thinking, what it is, um, Descartes and existentialism and so on. Now, um, talk about openness and fear. And uh, the post-colonial man is a critical thinker. We, um, this is, uh, we did we went through that, and then we started tracing Caribbean, defining Caribbean thought, its concepts and meanings, where well, we continue to do that, looking at the Caribbean 1492-93, but of course, you came to the Caribbean in 1492, okay, but to Jamaica in 1494, I think. I think, you know, I what I think is that, I think he, you know, if I'm, he, there was a, this, he discovered it and then left and came back and then occupied the land. So I need to do some more research about that because it is quite interesting because um, some people have 1493, some people have 1494. Um, the Jamaica Information Service have 1494, but, and there are those who said, well, he, he saw Jamaica, but he didn't come in. He left and then came back. So it's quite interesting. But um, this looks at the tracing Caribbean with competition and capital, slave trade. Those are some of the, when you trace Caribbean, some of the, key takeaways are the key themes that comes on Columbus, knowledge, religion with wealth, ulterior motive, gold, profit, greed, international competition, capital, slave trade, sugar plantation society, heroes and maroons, abolition, riots and loss, freedom and in independence, servitude and indentured labor from China and India, the coming of the Jews, 
Blacks work for wages, um, war, anti-imperialism, Marxism versus capitalism. Um, we talk about Edward Sergo made allusion to this Marxism versus capitalism. Then, of course, nationalist ideology from the 1940s to the 1955, and then again, 1970s to 80s, which we, I actually 1970s, in a, I wouldn't say this, from the 1970s to the 80s. Yeah, in a sense, yes, because there was Bishop in Grenada, but um, that was, I think that was part of the, the same kind of uh, geopolitical issues that we were having in terms of Marxism, the East versus the West, the North versus the South. Um, then, of course, at, at, and there at the issue of independence and short-term prosperity. Independence and short-term prosperity. I made an allusion to that with what my, um, Edward Siaga talked about. The, and, and we talk about what, what uh, miracle growth countries Malaysia and so on and so forth, Singapore, and we were right. And we were right there, actually. We were right there. Um, let me just, uh, middle income. So we talk about independence and short-term prosperity. You know what we're getting at, because by the 1970s, yes, we had the bauxite and so on and so forth. And these countries were considered middle income countries, but they were growing just at the turn of the, of the 50s. Just when they got independence, they were growing and in a sense with, with those middle, miracle growth countries. But by the time 1983, we still have Edward Siaga talking about a model for development. Okay, and talk so independence. Yes, we got independence and short term prosperity, short term. And then we talk about prosperity, we have to put that into perspective because Edward Siaga made reference to the fact that um, when you, these middle-income countries like Jamaica or the Caribbean, there are pockets of wealth. There are pockets of there pockets of wealth. There are po pockets of prosperity. Pockets, small areas that that look like first-world countries or have the potential to have to be first-world. Okay, but then when you go to other places, tremendous poverty. So if, you know, even you go to Beverly Hills, you go to Barbican, and so on and so forth. And then you go to play, certain places like. One time you went to Tivoli Gardens uh, or even some places Mont in, in Montego Bay or in some of the shacks and so on and so forth and see where people live. Or you, and then and compare that with where people, you go to Sand Hills, Johnson's Hill in Hellshire, you know, and, and so on. And you compare that, you were talk. that's what he's getting at. But yet they're independent and short-term prosperity. And then by the 1970s, the oil crisis, talk about the oil crisis, OPEC, Oil producing energy countries in the world, you, okay, the oil producing energy countries in the world. Um, by the 1970s, they cut oil production, rice, okay. And you thought, well, Trinidad had oil, Venezuela had oil, Guyana had oil. What was happening? And even today, I read an article where the Caribbean, Caribbean, Caribbean today is objecting to the US because they put an embargo on Venezuela and it's in a sense, they're trying to prevent the, this oil thing. It's like the Caribbean countries cannot, cannot um, trade and get involved with Venezuela. They have this program, and, but what, what, what happened? Is it, they use embargo on Venezuela to affect the other countries. You see how this is the policy, they make Venezuela look bad, evil. <laughs> so you think, yeah, but you have to think in terms of strategy, guys. So we talk about the 1970 the oil crisis, but it, there should not have been oil crisis for the Caribbean. But there, but anyways, we and then we talk about 
the issue of migration and brain drain. That's a major issue you have to contend with. The idea of what? Brain drain and migration. From the, the 1950s, you had there was a mass migration in the 1950s. And then also, and then by the time, and in the 1980s again, oh, the 1980s, a lot of, there was that, especially in the 1980s. With the, um, with the, with the, tri with the tribalism and the violence of the tribe, the, the political system that we had. In fact, sorry, actually, so the, it happened, it's some of, sorry, the migration started in the 19, yeah, the 50s, but there was migration in the 70s, actually, the 70s. Because many people thought, remember, we said that the other, we said, what was it last week or the week before that people thought that when we look at, oh, um, who was it? Um, uh, Keith and Novella, um, Keith, Nelson and Novella Keith, that this book is also in your, on your syllabus entitled The Social Origins of Democratic Socialism in Jamaica. And I read a little bit about you. I've been a bit for you. Many people in Jamaica in 1974, following a successful parliament, parliamentary election, Michael Manley and his People's National Party took Jamaica onto a self-proclaimed democratic socialist path. But the project failed even prior to the subsequent electoral defeat of the PNP in the 1980s. This short-lived experiment evoked considerable interest among development scholars. So Michael Manley also was also what had a strategy, a model for development in the 1970s. By 1980s, Edward Siaga had a struggle, had a, had a model for development. But, but obviously, none of their strategies were able to work because of penetration and because many of them were going it alone. It's, okay. And they, okay. so we talked about, we talked about that. So, we, so of course, so Michael, Man, of course, that's what we talk about Michael Manley versus Edward Siaga. One was appealing to populism or socialist, or socialism, but they never really, Michael Manley never really practiced um, Marxism or socialism to the T. It was more like a, a mixed economic experiment. It, he, it was more, it was more using the virtues of, of, of socialism, talking about it and promoting it, but never practice socialism because Jamaica was still, was still a dependent capitalist country in a sense. Um, of course, you have to, our relations with Castro because in the 1970s, Michael Manley was very good with friends with Castro. Bishop in the 1980s, um, uh, Maurice Bishop and Grenadian experiment, and how he and of course, if you read the, in um, in I think in neoliberalism I talked about that, but in um, the Caribbean Reader they talked about um, they provide a picture of the 1980s and what and how what led to the demise of Maurice Bishop. If some of his own countrymen led to his own debate, and we talk about Moise, the president in Haiti that was just assassinated. Some of his how how were how is it that people were able to come and and, and assassinate this president? Some of the very same people, we call them house slaves. Some of the very same people that support, we thought was his supporters killed him because of deals that they made and promises made to them. Because those people would help to facilitate the policy of the dominant country who wanted to penetrate. And I made mention of El El. Command uh, Marcos, command, 
commandant Marcos, who talked about how, how many of the, the, the elites, the nouveau rich, made deals with the elites of the Washington consensus. Okay, the dominant class in, that, that promoted the, the, the kind of capitalist structure. How they made deals. And, and they found themselves in Miami and so on and so forth. By the way, there's a news report today that 11, 11 politicians were up, uh, are being indicted or being investigated in Jamaica because 11 of our politicians were involved in, in, in agreements and deals that, that involved enriching themselves, enriching themselves. I get the feeling that this prime minister, when it comes down to corruption, he's no nonsense. That's good. Okay. But enriching themselves. A new country like ours, we have to be careful about certain people enriching themselves. It affects the project that we're trying to do to bring Jamaica and the Caribbean to a prosper so that we can be competitive. In the 1970s, we talk about migration. By the way, and when you think about migration, one sense it is bad, in another sense it is good. Okay, we talk in one sense it is bad, in another sense it is good. Because look who the prime migrate is this brain drain and migration that, that where we what we have it because I because I say to you, Jamaica now can take advantage of the people who are living in glow in the diet, take advantage of the diaspora. We have a strong diaspora. We talk about remittances. Remittances is one of the ways that Jamaica and the Caribbean earn foreign exchange. And they not only that, they the people, the diaspora, the can we have to they have to formulate stronger connections. Because they can bring back to the Caribbean and to their own countries ideas and strategies. We talk about who is the vice president of the US. A first generation, a, a first generation America, a first generation American Jamaican. A first, she's a first generation. Her father is Jamaican and her mother is Indian. Yes, home of. of Quite interesting. So what opportunities are there that we can, that's one of the ways we can reinvent and we make ourselves. Um, of course, we talk about remittances and how, and the growth of remittances between 1970s and 2019 and how, and the remit, and um, between 1970s and 2019, during COVID, it kind of remittances fell, but remittances, anybody, and that's what connect Caribbean countries or people of the global south, the issue of remittances, okay? That's what I when you know that's what when I'm in when I'm in my neighborhood and I talk with um uh, I mean I talk with certain people, they can they know what Western Union is, they can identify with Western Union, they can identify with MoneyGram, they can identify the importance of 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 sending of working not just for you, but also working to send back money to the countries where you are from. It is not just a Jamaican thing. Almost every, every person in the diaspora that comes from the global south or from a, or from a former colonizer or whatever the case, they wanted, we, in, a, in some sense, there's something that connects us, this issue of remittances. And some of the, you know, the system that we, we all, okay, so say for example, I have a, one, of my, one of my friends, an American, um, she does. She uses. Um, she said, "I see. I see you always on WhatsApp. What's WhatsApp? <laughs> you know, 
but then somebody else now knows what WhatsApp. Somebody, another per, friend of mine knows what WhatsApp is because we are connected with because he from Barbados, Barbados, and another friend she's from Trinidad. Oh, they use WhatsApp. I have another friend from um from 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 one of the Latin countries, and so we know what WhatsApp is to connect with those internationally from the global south. Some things that connects us, okay. Then we talk about carbon ident part carbon identity struggle conquest schizophrenia poverty inequality and dependent capitalism. But when we talk about oh and um, tracing Caribbean thought. I, I talk about the issue of Caribbean identity in terms of struggle conquest. What is the Caribbean identity? And that identity is formulated within what posture? Today I had a very intense argument. I was supposed to be talking about um, what's his name again. Franz Fanon, and um, and I have this book to start reading, and I, up to now I haven't started reading the book yet. Um, but I was going to talk. I had a, a very important conversation with my uncle, Bishop the Reverend Doctor Victor McKenzie, um, who is the senior pastor overseer for the National Church of God, Washington Park in Florida. One of the I was a former former overseer, and um, he called me today to talk about a business plan that were that I was working on. But um, and he took me to task about something, and uh, we were talking about um, ideologies and philosophies. And I said to him, you know, he said, "What does God require? God requires holiness, or oh, He wants holiness." Um, God requires holiness. What is what is? And I said, he, he, you know, he requires holiness. I said, what does that look like? We live in a in a. We have franchise. I said, we are so divided. Even within the churches, everybody think that they have an idea of holiness. And I said to I said and I said, if you study the Bible, or whatever the case might be, from. I said, when it, if you study the Bible and you look at the message of the Gospels from Genesis all the way up, it was all what you find that uh, you find this dividedness and it's as if God was bringing people back together. This unity, the unity that has that is that is affecting humanity. And even in our religion, well, many people think that religion is supposed to be, even even in our religion, it is as if we have created a religion that is outside of the universal plan of God, because some religions create exceptional language even to the point of coercion and death. Some religion promotes division. Because and I say to people that I believe that when you look at the Tower of Babel, um, the Tower of Babel is a great, it provides a picture of what happens when people have different languages, tongues, and so on and so forth. Fine. But then I said to him that, you know, he said that people are coming up with new stuff now, everything new. You know, everything new now, everything new, new ways of life and new stuff. You know, and I said to him, 
we will not be hypocritical, uncle. When Jesus was here, Jesus didn't discredit the Jews. The only problem he had with the Jews was that they weren't, they weren't living what they were preaching. Okay? So he didn't discredit the Jews. In fact, but he was a but he came with a new religion, you know, a new way of connecting with God. This is how you're saying that you're you're saying that oh, people are coming up with new stuff, a new ways of religion. Jesus did that, and the people and the people were saying, and the Pharisees and were saying the same thing. Sorry, the Pharisees decided to the Jews, here is it, this new Jew on the block, and he's introducing a new religion and a new faith. And they and so I said, You're doing the same thing. You're saying that oh, people are creating, and I said, Okay, even if I were to look at my mom and you today, your ideas and how you practice is if two, 10 years down the line, they think that you were committing hearsay. I said, You, you see, oh, we talk about the varieties of human natures and circumstance, the varieties of human nature and circumstance. We're going to get into Caribbean theology in a, in a few minutes. But beyond that point, I said, Jesus jettisoned his divinity. In, you know, Jesus demonstrated to us how, what it means for people to come together. Because I believe that the, what is the ultimate of all things is that we become one with reality. And Jesus demonstrated that by, I said, he, he did not appeal to his authority. He did not appeal to his religion. He created, he presented something new to the Gentiles. And he didn't, he didn't come and he, he, he wasn't, and he came and he, he, who was his audience? The Gentiles. You talk about the audience. Who is the audience? The audience was the Gentiles because the Gentiles thought they never had any religion. They were, you know, everybody else had their religion, the Jews and so on, but they never had no religion. And Jesus come now and he's now talking to the Jews, to the Gentiles. His message is to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And it was a new message. A way that they can become part. Be provided a way. But it was. Which was a little bit different from what. From what the Jews had or the other religion have. And he didn't discredit them. I said, oh no, all of them. But you, he, he never did. He said, you can do what you're doing. But I'm coming. I'm here. I'm coming. I'm talking to the Gentiles. I'm talking to some, I'm presenting, this is, I'm talking to them. Fine, you're saying that they don't come from your culture. They don't come from, they are not, they don't come from your culture and they can't, they can't worship your God. Fine, here it is. We will present another way to them. And so my message is to the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that what you have is not bad. And then another thing that he does he gets rid of his authority. In other words, he didn't appeal to any authority. He got, in a sense, I'm saying he got rid of his di divinity. He came as a in human form and took on human flesh. And in a sense, it provided a picture of how people, what, it, what people need to do in order to, to rescue humanity, what it takes for everybody to, to live as one. The, the, the ultimate of all things for us to live as one and to come together, it means we have to go as far as to giving up our divinity giving up the appeal to our authority. Jesus didn't appeal to his authority in a sense. You know, we talk about that. He didn't appeal to his divinity in a sense, yes? He, to the point where he, because he was divine, 
he was God. He could have, he never had to, to, to go on the, to the cross. And, but he became weak. So I'm saying that is God. He shows a picture of what New Testament may have to do in order to, to come together with the church of God. What the church of God have to do in order to come with the V.T. Williams or with the United Church in Jamaica or with the Baptists or with the, he showed that way in, but no, we create doctrine and we hold ourselves to those doctrines. Now, I'm not saying that we should get, please guys, don't get me wrong because we will not, okay? I am presenting you a particular perspective, okay? A particular perspective of what Jesus did. He, what did he do? He, he got rid, but so, so if that is what it takes, a killing of self, a separating of self, um, a letting go of some of the privileges and the benefits we have in order that we become one, which is the ultimate of all things, which is the greatest miracle, to kill certain things in ourselves in order that we become one. But when people look at it, they don't even look at it in those ways. Or what We are so blinded by other things. We look at it in some other ways. But, but everything lends itself to perspective. But we live in a competitive world. And we, and we privilege certain things. Okay? We have to get rid of race. People, we developed race in the 1600s. But you have to get rid of your black. You have to get rid of... In fact, there is a part of my book that I'm coming out with. It said, reimagining people within critical race theory. Not thinking... Oh, reimagining people within critical race theory, moving away from a victim approach to a hero approach to a hero approach. And I said, maybe it means get moving away from our ethnicities and our categories that divide us. And that's not just a racial, but politically, you know, PNP and JLP, all these things, human beings. It's the death of human beings. We, in, even in religion and pol politics, economics, everything. If you study society, every, in every, everywhere you go, you shall see division and categories. And that is the number, and those are the number one thing that has created the disparities, the death, the division, the problems for the Caribbean, the problems for Africa, the problems for vulnerable groups. When you study abuse and rape, Okay, what is rape? It's an abuse of power. Because there are those men who want to strut their egos. The issue of ego, the issue of chauvinism. I said to you the other day, I mean, I won't even say that yet about, um, so we, so we have to put, so anyway, so when we talk about Caribbean identity, we talk about struggle, we talk about con conquering. Oh, by the way, I told somebody today that the church never had a Roman identity. If we study church history, the church, the church never had, the church, the church never had a Roman identity. The way in which the church was church, when, when you look at how church, Jesus practiced church, had church on a veranda. Yes, and a veranda in a, in a room. By Ignatius come on the scene, and people wanted to give the church more popularity. 
you know, Jews for Jesus as against Jews not for Jesus, as the church in those in that period competed for dominance. All the or different religions were competing for dominance and so on and so forth. Some 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 church father Ignatius and others created the one of the bright ideas to give the church a Roman identity. And marrying and and all of a sudden you have the Roman Catholic Church. So after that. The, oh, when the people think about Christianity, you think about the Roman Catholic Church. That's it. Until the, until the Renaissance and Reformation. Until the Renaissance and Reformation. When people think about Christianity, it was synonymous with the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, in a sense, became very political. It is that political ideology that has helped to develop the, the, the Christian identity that we have today. And the way in which Jesus practiced church is not the way, and I want, is that the way, when you read the books, is that the way he intended, the way our church was informal? It was informal, you know? He might buck up some bread and give it out and sit down on the corner and just have some nice conversation and talk, you know? But then church became elaborate. That system, it became elaborate. That was man, it became elaborate. It was never like it became with, with and the way in which the church is structured with the pulpit and the top and the people at the bottom because who? Because the Pope was closer to God and he was supposed to lead the people. And so you look at how the church is structured in terms of that, that same privilege, okay, and so on and so forth. The, the same privilege. And so it is always etched in our minds. When we go to school, we talk about Michel Foucault that talked about institutions and how institutions are created to continue a kind of knowledge that preserves status quo and privilege. Yes. There is nothing that man is not involved in that has not been tainted by his selfishness and privilege, by this human nature and circumstance. There is nothing that is not, there is nothing, there, sorry, there is, sorry, that, that's a double negative. And since I'm, I'm an inact, but I'll, a double negative in Greek is important. It, it suggests emphasis, but fine for English, we say there isn't anything. Okay, so let me use proper grammar. There isn't anything, but for, for punctuation, exclamation, there is nothing that isn't devoid of man and his ego. To talk about Caribbean identity, talk about struggle, conquest, schizophrenia. We talk, when, why do I have schizophrenia here? Because we're talking about, you know, when, if we study schizophrenia, part of schizophrenia, we talk about schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is also okay. Opioids can can cause schizophrenia. Um, people say okay, well, um, people can be predisposed to genetics or whatever the case might be. But of course, a lot of that comes from experiences or post traumatic experience that people have. Schizophrenia, especially when you have, um, especially when you are caught between a rock and a hard place, it creates schizophrenia. When you are caught between east west values, capitalism and 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 communism, the global north and the global south, um, schizophrenia. Poverty, inequality, dependent capitalism. The, okay, part of the, the issue of Caribbean is globalization. 
talk about corruption, crime, and violence. Uh, corruption is what we're supposed to get into when we're not getting a chance. Corruption, crime, violence. The issue of corruption. We, um, we will play the video before I do the prison. I won't get into that yet. Then we talk about towards the future. If the Caribbean is an invention of the 21st, of the 20th century, it seems certain to be reinterpreted and perhaps transcended in the 21st century. Faith, culture, music, sports, and opportunity, science and technology, brain drain as part of an export value and so on. So one of the things that we have to look at, part of, but what, you know, part, the Caribbean still has some richness, of course, we talk about our faith, our culture, our music, our sports, science and technology, brain drain as an export value. Again, again, brain drain as an export value. Information and technology, those are some important key terms you want to zero in on. Um, community, the word community, collective sense, yet it is haphazard and not strategically effective in targeting. Now, but why do I, the word community, I said to people that the Caribbean community is, we, there is this collective sense in the Caribbean, but it is haphazard. Oh, we, they, the other day I was reading something from the Caribbean. They said, oh, we are uni more united than ever. We are not united, probably at the political level and, uh, and in terms of at the elitist level. But I say, so we have, a, there is a collective sense in the in Caribbean community, but it is haphazard and not strategically targeting and effective. We have to develop a better strategy. Okay. Say, for example, I said to people, there's some um, uh, uh, doctor, doctor, a good friend of mine who is from Portmore, Dr. Andre K. Isaacs, is from Jamaica, and he's a chemist. And he teaches at um, Holy Cross University. We both, we went to Penn, University of Penn together. But now he went to do his doctorate. His he did a doctorate at Penn, then he went on to do his postdoc his postdoctorate at UCLA, which is one of the top schools, I understand. Um, and then he left, I know he's teaching at Massachusetts and he's helping to develop ring cycles, make drugs or vaccines more effective. And I'm saying to people, wow. Yes, and I said that we're doing COVID, Jamaica couldn't even up to this point, we still don't have the technology and the capability to do what Cuba was trying to do. We don't even say, let us try to do it. Cuba was trying to do it, develop vaccines to combat COVID. And when the vaccines was made, were made, um, they get, most of it was sent to the rich countries first and they have an over preponderance of it while some people in other countries were dying, killing themselves to get the vaccine, but there was, they never had enough money, but other countries were preserving it. They finally relented and said, okay, we will give you the vaccine. When they realized they have all this vaccine piling up and become and many of them became and oh, uh, lose their shelf life all of a sudden drugs that lost shelf life or were outdated was was not still was not was still considered to be effective but then they were shipping it to global south countries and poorer countries of the global south If it is spoiled, they say, okay, oh, it's not spoiled, they send it to you. That's the talk about the value that people still give to certain people in life. 
And of, okay. And of course, if we, if, if the Caribbean is to become successful, I said, we have to develop backbone. And the other day I said, finally, oh, by the way, somebody liked what I said on Twitter, finally some backbone. They stood up to the, to, to the, to the US and, you, you and UN and so on and said, and, and came together at, a, I think there was a decision. They reject the, um, their stance, trying to prevent Caribbean countries and, and or the, um, the US stance on Venezuela. That is how you want to do it. When, when these big countries are attacking one of your own, you 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 come together and you and you you formulate a, a you know Jamaica shouldn't speak on its own, in a sense because they are afraid that oh they might issue a travel ban. Barbados shouldn't be. We have to speak together so that so that Jamaica so that the US can say oh we're going to issue a Caribbean a, a travel ban on the entire Caribbean for what. There must be something. So you know, it's easier for it's easier for the big countries. Notice I said the big countries, that's what they call the post-colonial countries, those in the global north, to issue a travel ban on one and two countries. But if all of you, all of us come together and make a decision and, and so on and so forth, it's not that easy. Yes, to discriminate and to single out and to create a policy to single out a particular. It's, okay, you see the point I'm making, started So the issue of interdependence and CARICOM. So the other day when they rejected, when they rejected um, uh, uh, um, a global South decision, they did it together. That is the only way you can mitigate any singling out or any, any policy that would single out a whole, because suddenly they're gonna say, well, wait, hold up. You're gonna hold the, that from all that means there's some sort of something surreptitious. Something is not right. It has more, it's beyond that. So it's easier for because they will now have to justify why you are all of a sudden creating a policy or travel, travel ban against all of the Caribbean countries. It's not so easy. So we talk about strategy. We talked about Iowaks to Africans already. You know, actually, this was a quick review with some more points that we did that I wanted to go over. Um, so that was that was quite important that I did that. Um, okay, great. We are running good. We talked about Marcus Garvey already. A little bit about Marcus Garvey. I invite you to read um, neoliberalism. You will. The perspective I provide on Marcus Garvey, you will not find it anywhere, just so you know. So you would definitely have to get a copy of this book. Um, it's available in audio, audio book, but it's not my voice. And I, somebody said to me, oh my God, I wish it was your voice, but I'm sorry. Um, that was the second book I probably do it in my voice. Um, George Padmore, Trinidad and born Pan-Africanist, political activists. Um, he explored the relationship between Pan-Africanism and Marxism and argues for their compatibility. And Africanism and Marxism. We talked about that already. Um, and I think we were, we did Homi Baba a little bit. She wrote, and oh, this is all her work. Uh, she edited Nation and Narration. Uh, and she said, oh, she, the powerful question she asked, what was missing from the traditionalist world of English literary study? We answered that question. What was missing from the traditionalist world of English literary study? I will ask you that question, by the way, in your exam. What is missing from the traditionalist world of English literary study? We delve into that 
I won't do go into that as yet right now because we don't have into that. We don't have much time. We introduced Sailor James. Um, he said of Castro and the Cuban Revolution that although Fidel and the Cubans are black, the attitude of their revolution is essentially a West Indian revolution, similar to 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 Saint's revolution in 1802 to 1804 in Haiti. That was a notable. Um, comment um he also said the west indians are not fully admitted into the western culture um and we talk about reggae and dancehall and rasta and creole but we have the opportunity to develop it we talked about that a little bit uh, for those haiti was the wealthiest colony and the slaves that came to the west indies were of fine physique he said haiti was one of the wealthiest colonies and the slave um and the slaves that came to the west indies were of fine physique we talked about that and intelligence so that they were able to withstand the middle passage okay we talk about um by the way um bookman dotty bookman yeah he was one of those that was a fine physique you know they say he was a tall man big attractive man you know he fought he was he took on the the french and not okay and you could also tell that he was in an intellectual because he started in a sense, he left religion. He brought the African religion and he spread it. I mean, some religion and of course, and understand he was first in reading the Quran, the Quran. So we thought, wow. So you know, probably that's quite interesting that he was first. I, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, this whole Muslim religion and came to Jamaica probably when in the 1980s or something of the sort or when the East Indians came later on but we learned that well we're learning that no the Africans were versed in some of the of the of the Muslim and the and the Quran okay Haiti was um Haitians and West Indians from Africa um, were very intelligent and they quickly learned the technique of production. And we said that, why do we believe that? Why? And I agree with him. I said, the Haitians and West Indians from Africa were very intelligent as they quickly learned the techniques of production in Western cultures, which must have meant that African society was organized and not backward as it was originally written. I'm, I'm going to say that again. Haitians and West Indians, because we said Haiti was the wealthiest colony. And the slaves that came to the West Indies were of fine physique and intelligence, so that they were able to withstand the Middle Passage. Haitians and West Indians from Africa were very intelligent as they quickly learned the techniques of production in Western culture, which must have meant that African society was organized and not backward as it was originally, as as with as was originally thought, thought or written. Let me let that sink in a little bit. Europeans took the best and brightest and strongest slaves. Many were princes and warriors abducted in tribal wars stemming from the European strategy and deal during the triangular trade. And of course, you can see his influences. I leave you to, to read up some more on him. Talk about VS Nepal. If you want, if, if I ask you the question about what was missing from the traditionalist world of English literary study, 
you want to you want to look at VS Nepal or what Homi Baba say about VS Nepal in her location of culture. Yes, people like VS Nepal was missing. I'm here. Am I answering it? But why? How so? What, what what am I getting at? What am I talking about? VS Nepal it was missing. Yes, he was a Trinidadian British writer known for his novels, essays, novel essays, and travelogues exploring themes of identity, colonialism, and post-colonialism. Yes, his influences were colonial experiences in the diaspora, literary traditionalists. Please remember that V.S. Nepal, of course, V.S. Nepal will tell you that his ancestral home is India. But he's from Trinidad. Why some people in, why some people would say, well, their ancestral home was in Africa. But for him, his ancestral home was in India. And if you look at the dynamics or demographics of of you talk about the ancestral home. Many people in, in, in Trinidad, or at least 50% of the population, would, would point, have this strong East Indian heritage, this Indian heritage. Okay. Many of them came from India. Especially with, in fact, it seemed a lot of the indentured laborers went to Trinidad. Very a few went to Caribbean to Jamaica, but not as much as what had went to Trinidad. Philosophies. We talk about the um what about what are his philosophies and ideologies? Of course, sorry, his influences, um, literary traditions, Indian diaspora, and so on, colonial experience. That those were some of his experiences. So therefore, when you see the books that he writes, you understand he's writing from a particular milieu. Um, philosophies, cultural hybridity, alienation, post-colonial critique. Okay, he talked about again cultural hybridity. His major work, A House for Mr. Biswal, a novel that tells the story of an Indo traditional man, um, Trinidadian man, struggle for identity and independence in a post colonial society and how he went. And he talked about the great wars of England. And when he went, he realized that the great, then he went to England, he realized that the great wars of England isn't that great. They're not better, they're not as great as the seashells that we take for granted in our own countries. Of course, he wrote the book, The Mimic Man, The Middle Passage in Presence of Five Societies, British, French, and Dutch in the West Indies and South America. History is built around achievement and creation and nothing was built in the West Indies. What does he mean by that? We talked about that already. History is built around achievement and creation. And nothing was built in the West Indies. You have to put that into context. Okay, you can read that against the, in many people read V.S. Nepal against the intentions of the author and against his original intent and meaning. History is built around achievement and creation and nothing was built in the West Indies. In a sense, he's talking about the complexity of a dualistic so society based on privilege, one that's based in ethnocentrism. Say, for example, I, I'm going to later on, just before we end class, I will read something about Caribbean theology, which is very important that talks about chroma. And I, I've been trying to find a very important book of mine, which I, for some reason I cannot find, and I'm very disappointed about it. Because it's a very important concept I want to raise with you about Edward Said. 
Edward Said is talk uh, what is what um, and he talked about um, so a, a very important issue. But um, history is built around achievement and creation, and nothing was built in the West Indies. Of course, that's not true. Okay, that's not true. But he's speaking in prose. Okay, that is what many. That is what people would want you to believe that if you if you read his book a house of mr biswas then it will give you an understanding of what he means by history is built around achievement and creation and why he's and and remember he's speaking out of a particular milieu The Trinidadian cosmopolitan is a natural anarchist, he said. He is without the greater corruption of sanctimoniousness. He is without what? The greater corruption. Corruption of sanctimoniousness. The Trinidadian, the, cosmo, the cosmopolitan, the post-colonial subject. We can't be too sanctimonious. Okay, because it takes away from your natural anarchist attitude and stance when you realize the how the Caribbean or the post-colonial subject have been ravaged. The Trinidadian is a cosmopolitan. He's a natural anarchist, and he's seen as an anarchist. He is without the greater corruption of sanctimoniousness. And then that brings us to the next, to Franz Fanon. We will take a break. When we come back, we will delve into, uh, we'll begin by talking about, we will, when we come back, we'll, become, we'll come back in, uh, in five minutes. Um, I, I want to talk about, uh, wow, I need to put this right, a very important matter here. Put this right here. Oh, here we go. Um, we're going to talk about Fred Fanon when we come back. And I'm going to take some time to, um, in chapter three, where is that book? In chapter three of, uh, chapter two of the location of culture in Homi Baba. Homi Baba talks about, um, the chapter, the the the, um, the chapter, the topic of the chapter is interrogating identity, interrogating identity, interrogate identity. Um, and please, when you talk about in, it's an investigation of identity, but it's more than just in investigate. In interrogate is stronger language. It's an aggressive way of dissecting identity. And Franz Fanon, and it's called Franz Fanon and the and the post-colonial prerogative. The post-colonial prerogative. What is your prerogative? Is it not to interrogate identity? That is why that, that this is exactly what led to Rex Nettleford and his article talking about identity. 
But I don't think um, Edith Dalton, Edith Dalton, Edith Clark was interrogating any identity within the prerogative of the post-colonial. No, she was not. My mother who fathered me, the writer. Many, uh, many people are upset with me for saying that. Many Jamaicans, some scholars, they stopped following me. I, I don't care how many, I would love to have a million followers, but that's not, that's not my drive. I believe in the law of mod. Okay. I am going to say this. In the 1970s and 80s, when they were studying the organizational dynamics in the Caribbean, or particularly Jamaica, in rural Jamaica, trying to understand what um, um, the family unit, many people in Jamaica was couldn't understand, describe the family unit in some communities as illegitimate, as illegitimate. Because in the communities, cousins were sleeping with cousins, I guess, and or they were cohabiting with each other. And, um, and it, was, it was, in other words, it was a kind of family that did not subscribe to the functionalist theory of what a normal and functional, functional and legitimate family should look like, or what pertains in other parts of Jamaica, the part that had fully inherited colonial and a Britishness, this sanctimoniousness that VS, sanctimony, sanctimony. This a kind of piety, a kind of lifestyle. But anyway, so they were trying to understand it, and in their in in and their conclusion was that it the behavior, this illegitimate behavior, family life, the dynamic in these communities. You can go back and read Edith Edith Clark's book, My Mother Who Fathered Me. Many of you read that book, and she talk about the illegitimacy and and the family, the organizational unit, how family was organized in these areas. It wasn't the nuclear family that what we we want. Okay, they never. It wasn't the nuclear family. wasn't the key. wasn't this wasn't the essential and the highlighting. It was more extended family. It was more more um. It the living arrangement was was uh, was 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 um was cohabiting, cohabiting co um, women and would, would men, the men would visit different um, homes and one week would spend one week here. And then of course, in some communities you find the family and so on. And it was quite interesting. And they would, they talked about illegitimacy and so on within these family groups. And then they said, well, it comes from Africa. It comes from Africa. As if there was no sense of the nuclear family. But that's not true. Edith Clark did not study African society wide enough. She, she studied it. Her study did not go as far as anthropological studies or whatever. It, what she did was what exactly what, um, what um, Homi Baba was talking about. She became interested, Homi Baba, in reading, not Oxford, I'm sorry, in not reading the center, those traditional writers from the center, she started reading off center in a sense, doing critical thinking. It is 
it is not true that the Africans never had a had, they never had a center. They of course they had a center family. The behavior that they that okay, so the the, the, the ideology and the explanation or the rationale or the justification came from within the political, sorry, from the, the predominant milieu, milieu, the same milieu that Frank Fanon writes against when he says the Negro is not and put a full stop where a full stop shouldn't go any more than the white man. A violent break from the standards of language. That did not pertain with some of us here in the Caribbean in terms of how we did our, our sociology and how we conducted our study, okay, and the rationale of the study. Because I will tell you, it was not true that that behavior was learned and came from Africa. I mean, after years of slavery, where, the fa where family life was not an important feature of the slaves, all of a sudden, they are now trying to explain their behavior as coming from slavery. What about the, the experience of slavery and, and, and how, how family life wasn't the most, it, what family wasn't important? And the Mandingo sleeping with all and the mandingo was used to 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 produce as many children for the for this for the for the for the plantocracy as possible for the slave owner to increase and to expand this property that's critical thinking at work right there that's what i'm talking about so but so so here is frank fanon Homi Baba said, Homi Baba said about Frank Fanon, to read Frank Fanon is to experience the sense of the vision that prefigures and fistures the emergence of a truly radical thought that never dawned without casting an uncertain dark Fanon. He may yearn for the, transform, for the transformation of the total transformation of man and society. But he speaks from he speaks most effectively from the uncertain intercities of historical change, from the area of ambivalence between race and sexuality. Out of an unresolved contradiction between culture and class from deep within the struggle of psychic representation and social reality. Okay, but we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Um, what time? I said I was going to take a break and I, I apologize. I don't want you guys to take me to task. All right, we come back in five minutes, nine, twelve. We come back at 9.16. And then we'll pick up from where we left off, okay? All right, we'll take five minutes and we'll pick up and we will talk about, um, he defines colonization as the state of absolute depersonalization, okay? We'll come back and discuss that a little bit for you. All right, we'll be right back, guys.
chapter nine of neoliberalism. It's the book, it's book one, neoliberalism book one. Um, entitled the sorry, the topic, the title of chapter nine is on no, 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 sorry, we did chapter nine already. The limitations of black nationalism and garbageism. We actually did a quick review of it, quick reading for you guys. But chapter seven of the book, chapter seven of neoliberalism is Caribbean feminism. And I said, uh, we have discussed how Jamaica is putatively an independent democratic nation since 1962. Notice I said the word putatively. We have discussed how Jamaica is what? Putatively, how the Caribbean islands and former colonized countries and black people we are putatively an independent democrat democratic nation. When you think about the kind of invention, the, okay? Since 1962, listen to this, this is important. Jamaica's elites have carved out a future for themselves. Just like the Haitian elites, as they apply, as they apply what? In quote, race to the bottom policies that continue to exclude and extract their people and wealth. In effect, this is under the chapter Caribbean um, feminism. In effect, decolonization and neoliberal globalization have deepened Jamaica's independence on the new global elite of the Washington consensus. And I'm talking about the Washington consensus. What am I talking about when I talk about the Washington consensus? And, um, and, I, I, and I define it. I said in the, in the preface of the book, and by the way, the preface of my book is available. That you can get. It's all over. You can go online and get the preface. If you go on, uh, if you go on Amazon and buy, um, you can. There's a look inside feature where you can get. If if you can't get the whole book, you can at least get the preface. Trust me. And the preface, as I said to you, when you have a book, the one of the most important parts you want to read is the preface, the author's note, the introduction. The preface covers provides an introductory argument, in a sense. I said as we as we discuss black as such we will discuss black brown and pan-african struggles for economic prosperity for economic prosperity justice and freedom and consider efforts abilities or inabilities to chart their own futures since decolonization and realize real political independence and economic prosperity and notice i said in chapter nine we have discussed how Jamaica is putatively, chapter seven, an independent democratic nation since 1962. Jamaica's elites have carved out a future for themselves as they apply race to the bottom policies that continue to exclude and extract their people and wealth. In effect, decolonization and neoliberal globalization have deepened Jamaica's dependence on the new global elite of the Washington consensus. This is because neoliberal globalization is a, is a sophisticated and elaborate way of producing and transferring wealth. I said, that, and if and earlier we read Ramesh Ramsawan on this challenge of structural adjustment in the Commonwealth Caribbean and the issue of structural adjustment, which involves the transferring of decision making. Decision making. When you we talk about nationalism, it's about self determination, 
um, and so and uh, uh, self-governing decision making, this decision making. But then structural adjustment arrive on the scene and takes away this decision. It takes away your so though so that so then and I and I talk about until then you go to the preface of the book where I say that's where the putative we're putatively independent. But then I talk about it in a set. You go back to the preface. I said um, as such we will discuss black, brown, and pan African struggles for economic prosperity, justice, and freedom, and consider affordabilities or inabilities to chart their own futures since decolonization and realize real political, real, in chapter seven, I talk about putatively. In other words, when we talk about something is putative, a form of, a, it's putatively. In other words, I said it is known to be, but it is not, okay? putatively independent, but it, we are not. And we talk about, we talk about their struggles to, 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 to get de, to, for decolonization and to realize what? Real political independence and economic prosperity. And I said, perhaps they are charting their own course by the what? The few corrupt of the status quo, the few corrupt, that's why we're gonna do corruption next week. The few corrupt of the status, maybe they're charting their own course by the few corrupt of the status quo who are benefiting from partnerships with the neoliberal regime of the Washington consensus, advocates of the what? Bureaucratic phenomenon. That's neoliberalism and capitalism here. The bureaucratic, while the masses, most Jamaicans are left behind. John Williamson, the inventor of the term Washington consensus, John Williamson, John Williamson, John Williamson, the inventor of the term Washington Consensus, believes the term has two quite different meanings. First is the meaning he gave the term, which involves consensus around a set of 10 policy reforms, which he believes were widely accepted as beneficial by economists. Fiscal discipline, a reduction of public expenditure, such as um, oh, towards fields offering both high economic ret returns, interest rate liberalization, competitive exchange rate, trade liberalization, liberalization of FDI flows, foreign direct investment, privatization, deregulation in the sense of abolition of bar barriers, tariffs, things that prevent that part of this, um, uh, we're talking the fiscal, um, this, uh, this Washington consensus that follows the bureaucratic phenomenon, those policies secure property rights, so on. For our examination, we will use the term in the latter, Reaganomics, bash the state. The approach, you know, so in a sense, we talk the Washington consensus. So we talk, so I talk about, in effect, decolonization and neoliberal globalization have deepened the realities of Jamaica and the Caribbean. This is because neoliberal globalization is a sophisticated and an elaborate way of producing and transferring wealth. It is not new, but its techniques are different. It's not new, but its techniques are different from its historical roots of ordering the world, shaping the world, shaping the world for the special interest. Shaping the world for who? For the special interest. The effects of neoliberalism on the poor are similar to the damages left on them by their predecessors. The effects of neoliberalism on the poor, 
stemming from the, public, the 1970s and beyond, are uh, the, the effects of neoliberalism on the poor are similar to the damages left on them by its predecessors. Now, Franz Fanon, a post-colonial literary nationalist genius of the 1950s, has made a significant contribution to, the, to Caribbean thought and the political economy of decolonization. He has influenced a type of Caribbean nationalist thought. He has influenced Frank Fanon, a type of Caribbean nationalist thought and theory, a type, what type? That has, that has defined some independent nationalist movement in the global South and black activism against neoliberalism in America. Therefore, his ideology is important for us in examining neoliberalism or neoliberal globalization and the political economy of decolonization in Jamaica, the Caribbean, and the global South. His projects, Black Skinned White Masks and The Wretched of the Earth, makes you suspicious of presumed independence and freedoms as a post-colonial people. He himself has sought rescue and salvation from his misfortunes in pre-independent Algeria by looking to the colonial motherland France, yet he did not find much hope. Just despair and racism. Many people, you talk about people, Caribbean, they look to escape, Jamaican look to escape, Haitians are looking to escape. They travel, travel for opportunities to escape. Frank Fanon looking to escape because he was ill. He, he was stricken with, he, he got leukemia. He developed leukemia and had to travel looking for, for cure and eventually died. But he was suspicious in the hospitals. But when he, but in his travels, he were trying to go to, 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 to France, but he never got there. But in his, he, in his travels, he said he, he did not find much hope, just despair and racism. He left looking for hope, but he didn't find none. Just more despair and racism. For there is nowhere that true colonized or post-colonial man can turn. There is nowhere that the colonized or post-colonial man can turn. Fanon left an imperialist system for one that was racist. Yet it was this racism in France that drove the imperialism in Algeria. Therefore, it is no wonder that Fanon concluded that the colonized underdeveloped man is today a political creature in the most global sense of the term. Because, we're, because wherever you go, if you're either met with an imperialist ideology in the global south and you go to the global north, you're met with racism a different kind of imperialism or a different kind of discrimination or a different kind of domination. The colonized underdeveloped man is a political creature in the global sense of the term. Or if you get independent in your own country, you, and he died in 1961, he didn't realize that he was a man beyond his years. By the 1970s and 80s, we're talking about structural adjustment and debt, so on and so forth. For Baba, they're almost the same. Sorry, 
um, the post-colonial, the post-colonial, the post-colonialist Homi Baba agrees asserting that the globalized world, the globalized world, the globalized world that we now live in contains what? Vestiges, vestiges of the colonized colonial um, colonist world. Vestiges that spill over or different tropes or how it's built. As we move towards the, 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 a century without with, uh, in an independent, with independent and so on, it's reordering a way that where people still have their domination over others. There's no way you can turn. For Baba, they are almost the same as the elitist structure society for their benefit alone by committing violence, systematically exploiting labor and distorting humanity through the Manchian applications. We concluded previously that the neoliberal world is a compartmentalized world divided into two to two and inhabited by different species, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have not, blacks and whites, elites and dumb masses, etc., east and west, south and north, developing and non-developing or the developed and, and developing, etc. In effect, Neoliberal globalization duplicitously, duplicitously, in you know other words, duplicity comes from hypocrisy. Duplicity is that you don't people you don't practice what you preach. Duplicitously practices what it preaches against. Duplicitously practices what it preaches against. And according to David Henry, neoliberalism proposes to advance, proposes to advance the well-being of all through the promotion of free market enterprise, private property, and individualism, and its actual consequences, the restoration of class power. It proposes that neoliberal globalization proposes to advance the well-being of all through the promotion of what? Free market enterprise, private property, and individualism, and it's, but however, however, the actual consequences, the restoration of class power. Essentially, essentially, since the resurgence of liberal capitalism on the global scale, mid to late 1970s, class power has increased. And if you look at income inequality, to the night, up to, in, income inequality has worsened. Income inequality. If you look at the Gini coefficient, the Gini coefficient studies income inequality in society. And this book taught the first couple of chapters in this book looks at the Gini coefficient, which looks, tells you what the, the in, which looks at income inequality in society. And up in, lately it has worsened. And the more income inequality, the more crime and violence. Essentially, since the resurgence of liberal capitalism on the global scale, class power has increased and developments have been unevenly distributed geographically and, demog and demographically. Geographically and demographically. Again, again, essentially, since the resurgence of, lib of liberal capitalism on the global scale, class, po class power has increased since the, since the mid 1970s. Class power has increased and developments have been 
unevenly distributed geographically, notice the word geographically and demographically. In other words, so distribution of wealth is and reach and so on is based not only on in terms of where you live, but in terms of your ethnicities or your race or the makeup of the population. The makeup of the population determines how much wealth is in that population or within that region or among those peoples. The Jamaicans negotiated their independence without taking back their wealth or the Caribbean. Their capital was drained and trans transported as royalties overseas to the global elites, while many of their peoples fell further into abject poverty. What was necessary was not just negotiated independence, but a redistribution of the wealth. Again, let me say this again. The Jamaicans negotiated their independence without taking back their wealth. Their capital was drained and transported as royalties overseas to the global elites, while many of their peoples left fell further into abject poverty. What was necessary was not negotiated independence, but a redistribution of the wealth, a pre-accumulation pre of capital that had eluded them for decades. The redistribution of wealth required a revolution of strategy and force because, as Martin Luther King Jr. observed, the oppressors do not willingly share what they stole, but it must be taken by the oppressed. The question for consideration is how Fanon's ideas apply to the de- and recolonization and the neoliberal globalization experience of Jamaica. My own observations are oriented by my own interest in the political economy of decolonization and neoliberal globalization. Jamaica's independence is a myth. I, I continue by saying Jamaica's independence is a myth because they are still hopelessly, de hopelessly dependent on outsiders for their survival. Decolonization paved the way for neoliberal globalization. Again, decolonization, so when we talk about, oh, we were praising decolonization, but it paved the way for neoliberal globalization. This means that we must reassess the influence of the Martinican psychiatrist and political scientist, Frank Fanon, on radical Caribbean thought from the 1960s to the 70s. Because the British, the British granted Jamaica's independence on British terms. The British what? Granted Jamaica's independence on British terms. And the Jamaican did not take it by violence or force as the combination of a militant popular anti-colonial mobilization. Hence, it was not in, it wasn't, it was not independent at all, but a myth created jointly by the colonial powers and the middle class nationalist leaders. Again, the middle class nationalist leaders, the nouveau rich. Let me say it again. Hence, it was not independent at all, but a myth created jointly by the colonial powers and the middle-class nationalist leaders of the Fanon type, the Nouvelle Rich. The British sought to maintain the essence of the colonial status quo, while the nationalists merely wished to substitute their formal authority for that of the colonial rulers with all the trappings and with all the trappings and prerequisites of office that it brought. This was to cripple the collective capacity of the Jamaican people to forge a new society in the post-colonial era. Mainstream political leaders were, were indisputably Anglophiles in their personal political and philosophical orientations. 
They lustfully sang, God save the queen at political meetings and believed in the inherent superiority of Westminster institutions. Being free, independent men was limited to a desire to take their rightful places as equal members of the British Empire and not equal members of the world. And we go on and on and on. Barbados, like Jamaica during the 1960s, was the scene of Barbados, was the scene of social striving surrounding the Black Power, and the Black Power movement and radicalism in, in, in general in 1960s, Barbados. The Rodney riots in Jamaica in 1968, propelled by the refusal of re-entry to Walter, to Walter Rodney, sparked some measure of social protest against the JLP government and were, and were concentrated around, though not limited to, the urban areas of Kingston, where most of Rodney's influence had extended among the urban poor. As more of a, pre as more of a preemptive strike, the government of Barbados made a deliberate attempt to suppress the black radicalism spreading across the Caribbean in the 1960s and 70s, the Barbados, Barbados government, with the passage of, they passed an, a, 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 an order called the Public Order Act, passed in 1970. It was expressly introduced to prohibit and curtail individuals from part, participating in any serious discussions about race. It is important to note that in both Barbados and Jamaica during the 1960s, the source of social protest was the, politiz the politicization of race in such a way that the black freedom won by formal independence from Britain did not mean the freedom to transform the sociopolitical and racial landscape of these countries. And I go on and on and on, this is deep. It's so, um, this book is deep. I'm reading this book. You know, I wrote this book. And every I, when I take it up and read it, I'm like, it's just, I'm, God was writing through me. I take no, I am humbled. But this, but when you start to study the archives and read, listen to, listen to what I'm saying. Why I say it's a myth. As that uh, in where am I here? I said, where is it? Where is it? I gotta go back here. I said, uh, passed in 1970. We're talking about the Public Order Act passed by um, Barbados. It was exp why was it? It was introduced. Why? Why was it introduced? To prohibit and to curtail individuals from what? From participating in any serious discussions about race. It is important to note that in both Barbados and Jamaica during the 1960s, the source of social protests was the politicization of race in such a way that Black freedom won by formal independence from Britain did not mean did not mean when they got independence, it didn't mean the freedom to transform the sociopolitical and racial landscape of these countries. They still wanted to practice race. They were still, um, they just wanted to, to have their own countries.
dominated by a British elite, by a kind of elitist ideology that they, that they occupied, a space that they occupied over every other. And I go on and on, it's quiet. So, so here I'm talking about, I'm talking about this within the context of, and then I go on to talk about independence and globalization, myth and counter myth, myth and counter myth. Barbados like Jamaica during the 1960s was the, was the social striving surrounding black power. Black power movement and radicalism. Not, okay. The rock, oh, I talked about that already, blah, 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 blah. And it, go, it goes on and on and on. Despite, since, the 19, since 1975, um, despite since 1975, they appear to, um, certainly appears to justify Farnham's position that Jamaica's independence was a myth. But anyway, I don't have time for, to, to explore that. But it brings me now to, to Franz Fanon in his book, in this book, where Homi Baba talks about Franz Fanon. In the book, he says, the colonized, underdeveloped man is a political creature in the most general sense of the term. And according to, um, to, to, and, and, and according to Simone de Beauvoir, in The Force of Circumstance, at once, when Sartre, had made some comment. He, Fanon, gave an explanation of his egocentricity. A member of a colonized people. A listen to what he says, Frank Fanon. A and he was talking to Jean-Paul Sartre when he said this. A member of, of a, a member of a colonized people must be constantly aware of his position. Constantly aware of his position, his image. He is being threatened from all sides. We talk about Edward Siaga, the East and the West, or the Global South and the Global North, or whatever the case. Um, Bob Marley, we're not, we're not cap capitalist or us or Marxist, we Rasta. That was his method. His method, his strategy, his salvation, Bob Marley was Rastafarianism. Okay? Edward Siaga, was was a kind of model was a was a kind of was was capitalism or Reaganomics. Um, Michael Manley was popularism or through socialism well a socialist project he tried. But France, but so um, Sartre said made a comment to Sartre saying so the underdeveloped man. Um, Please remember, Frank Fanon said the colonized underdeveloped man is a political creature, a creature, not a creator, a creature, political creature in the most global sense of the term, global sense of the term. Sartre had made some comment. He, Fanon, gave an explanation of his egocentricity, his ego. I, he said, a member of a colonized people that's that Frank Fanon must be constantly aware of his position, his position, his image. Because you know, he is always being defined. He's always been we look at Jean Morant, look at look at Kyrie Irving. People are always, you know, look at so this is important what why Sartre would say that. 
the color the, the colonized man is a political creature in the global sense wherever you are wherever you turn he can never be he can never become what he, he what he is not but what he is supposed to be he can never become what he is not but what he will never but he, but he but what he has but he what he was never supposed to be again he can never become what he is not but what he is supposed he can never become what he is not but what he was never supposed to be but he, if he is never supposed to be what he is not why should he become that because people strive for what they ought to be and supposed to be but who are they supposed to be and who determines that But we live in a competitive world. Remember, we say that all the time. This is powerful. This is powerful, man. So you have to, so, so yes, this is important. Wherever you are, wherever you go, a member of a colonized people must be constantly aware of his position, his image. Why? Because he is threatened from all sides. All sides. Especially when you live in a reordered world. Within a Western world, he finds himself within a Western world where he was not supposed to be. But we are told that when you are in Rome, you live as the Romans do. You are supposed to be English, but you can never be too English. He is being threatened from all sides. Impossible to forget for an instant. The need to keep up one's defenses. The need to keep up one. Courses like this is a response to this. When you do post-colonialism, pan-Africanism, post-Caribbean um, political theory or political thought, um, post-Caribbean -Car theology, courses like these are very important because they speak to this issue. The issue that he is being threatened from all sides. When you do Caribbean thought, you're doing Fanonism. You're responding to Fanon. Fanon said that he, he, he gave an explanation of his egocentricity. He's egocentric. Why are we so egocentric? Why are Ronaldo so egocentric? He's always talking about himself and talking about his book and talk. We were never talked about. We were not important. And we have to write our own history, lest it be written for you as it was, as is, and was the case. You know, when you study control, how do people control? They control you by first redefining you. Telling you what you are not. People must be constantly aware of his position, his image, the colonized. He is being threatened from all sides. Impossible to forget for an instant. 
the need to keep up one's defenses. You know why these courses are important? It is a way to you have to constantly keep up the need to keep up one's defenses. Now, let's Franz Fanon. Franz Fanon. Franz Fanon, the legend in American in America, starts with the story of his death. Franz Fanon, legend in America, starts with starts with the story of his death in Washington on December 6, 1961. So he was in Washington when he died. Despite his reluctance to being treated in that country of lynchers, his, he was, he, did, he you know, he's suspicious. Notice what I just read just now. There's a reason, okay, about his egocentricity and, um, and, and, you know, he's suspicious of the nurses. He's suspicious of his medical team. He's suspicious of the doctors. This is 1961 and he's been treated for leukemia and, they're, and he's suspicious. Despite his reluctance to be treated in that country of lynchers, that's what we call them, Fanon was advised that his only chance of survival lay in seeking the leukemia treatment available at the National Institute of Health in Bethsaida, Maryland. Now, accompanied by, who accompanied, who accompanied Franz Fanon? A CIA officer stricken with leukemia finds himself in Washington being treated for leukemia. He didn't want to go there, but he went there because that was the only place um, where he could get the treatment he needed, which is, which is kind of, I mean, and then you fast forward to today, 21st century. In the 21st century, you still find the same thing happening where people still need to travel to the global south for the treatment they need because it's not available in the global south or in some places. It's not available in black communities. In black communities, you have to go outside to get the treatment. Or in some communities where you have a preponderance of black people or people of color. No matter where you are, I, I said to you know one of my professors, Professor Martin Oppenheimer. Professor Martin Oppenheimer, who wrote the book The State of Modern Society, The State of Modern Society, this book. Very important. He said, when you study post-colonial post-industrial societies or societies where, where, where we, that was once where our former colonial masters are and those in America or countries that had colonies and those who still have colonies, post-industrial countries, countries of the global north. When you look at those societies and those societies where you, and where you have some amount of people of color, people who are of the post-colonial, people who were former colonized, vulnerable group, whatever the case is, black, brown, people of color. When you look at those communities, those cities, those places and spaces where you find people dominated by black and brown and by a particular an experience that comes from colonization, it almost look, it looks just like the Caribbean, in a sense, dominated by the post-colonial subject. Wherever you find a preponderance of post-colonial subject, you find lack, you find struggle. Yes? And, it, and he's alluding to that. There is nowhere where you can turn. 
But anyway, he finds himself in Maryland, Franz Fanon, accompanied by a CIA case officer, provided by the American embassy in Tunis. Fan, um, they flew to Washington, changing planes in Rome, where he met Jean-Paul Jean Sartre. But was, he, was too, um, he was too sick to utter a single word. A few days later, on August 3, Fanon was admitted to the hospital as Ibrahim Fanon, a, so, a supposedly Libyan um, nom de guerre, de guerre, he had assumed to enter a hospital in Rome after being wounded in Morocco during a mission for the Algerian National Liberation Front. So there was the, um, the you know, the Algerian revolution, the, the war, there was the Algerian war, there was, uh, there was uh, the black nationalist movement and revolution, they were fighting. And so of course, fighting for independence and liberation. the National Liberation Front. But anyways, his body was stricken. So he was a fighter. He was an academic, but he was a fighter. He was part, and he wanted to, come, to go back and fight in the front for the Libyan, for the, for the Libyan, for the Lib, uh, um, Libyan, for the Libyans, or with the Libyans. His body was stricken, but his fighting days were not quite over. He resisted his death minute by minute. A friend reported from his bedside as his political opinions and beliefs turned into the, the delirious fantasies of a mind raging against the dying of the light. He was dying. Somebody was by his bedside and the person reported that his hatred of racist Americans now turned into a distrust of the nursing staff. He his hatred for racist Americans turned inward into a distrust of the nursing staff. And he awoke on his last morning, having probably had a blood transfusion through the, the night, obsessed with the idea that they put me through the washing, the washing machine last night. His death was inevitable. We did everything we could, his doctor reported later. But in 1961, there wasn't much, much you could do, especially when he came to us late. Perhaps it was writing of the wretched of the earth in a feverish spurt between April and July of 1961 that contributed to his fatal delay. When his wife, Josie Fanon, read him the enthusiastic early reviews of the book, the book he wrote, this book, he could only say, that won't give me back my bone marrow. On the day of his death, the French police seized copies of his book, The Wretched of the Earth, from the Paris or the Paris bookshops. After his death, Simone de Beauvoir remembered seeing Fanon's photograph all over Paris for a couple of weeks on the cover of, on some cover of some magazine on uh, Jean Afrique in the window of the Maspero bookstore. Younger, calmer than I'd ever seen him, and very handsome. You see, we're talking about France. You see how France has always been in some trying to try. You know, we talk about Haiti. Here, here they are now seizing France Fanon's book. As colonized person, a colonized person must constantly be aware of his image. Jealousy protects his position. Jealousy protects his position. 
Fanon said to Sartre, the defenses of the colonized are turned like anxious antenna, wait, waiting to pick up the hostile signals of a racially divided world. In the process, the colonized acquire a peculiar visceral intelligence dedicated to the survival of body and spirit. Fanon's two most influential books, Black Skin, White Masks, and The Wretched of the Earth, evoke the concrete and contrasting worlds of colonial racism as experienced in metropolitan France in the 1950s and during the anti-colonial Algerian War of Liberation. A decade later, is his work lost in a time warp? Is his impassioned plea that the third world must start over a new history of man merely a vain hope? Does such a lofty um, idea represent anything more than lost rhetoric baggage of that daunting quest for a non-aligned post-colonial world inaugurated at the Bandung Conference in 1955? Who can claim that dream now? Who can claim that dream now? Again, listen to this. The third world must start over a new history of man. Is that a mere, no, <laughs> let me read this again. Fanon two, Fanon's two, two most influential texts, Black Skin, White Masks, and The Wretched of the Earth evoke the concrete and contrast, contrasting worlds of colonial racism as experienced in metropolitan France in the 1950s and during the anti-colonial Algerian War of, of Liberation a decade later. In his, and the question is, is his work, the two works, lost in a time warp? Because where is that drive today? Is his impassioned plea that the third world must start over a new history of man. Is that merely a vain hope? Does such a lofty ideal, this new history of man, does such a lofty ideal, does it represent anything more than the lost rhetorical baggage, the lost rhetorical baggage, the lost rhetorical baggage, notice the word lost, vain hope and lost, this, this, this history of a new man, the, the third world must start over, a new, a new history of man. Is that merely a vain hope? Is that a lofty ideal that represents nothing more than the lost rhetorical baggage of that daunting quest for a non-aligned post-colonial world inaugurated at the Bandung Conference in 1955? Who can claim that dream now? Yes, because we talked about... Now, let me... You see how I'm rep repetitive? You see how all these people, when you read them, it's like the same thing over and over. It, and how they... Look at what, what did I say um, when I was reading um, Homi Baba, Location of Culture. What did I say? I, what did I say in the, the part, looking back, moving forward, notes on binocular cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism, homie Baba. I was not one of midnight's children. 
My belated birth some years ago after the midnight hour that marked India's stress with freedom absent me from that epical narr narrative. I was not there to witness the emergence of India and Pakistan, their independence, born together from a cleft womb, blah, 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 so on and so forth. In a small way, my early life was caught on the crossroads that marked the end of an empire. The post-colonial drive towards this new, this new horizon. What is this new horizon that she's getting at? Frank Fanon. Is his work lost in a time warp? Is his impassioned plea that the third world must start over a new history of man? Is that merely a vain hope? Is that an, an, a lofty ideal representing anything more than just a rhetoric? Is it just rhetorical baggage? You know, when they had okay, rhetorical baggage of that daunting quest, insurmountable quest for a non-aligned, non-aligned, when you talk about non-aligned means non-aligned, separate and apart, a non-aligned post-colonial world, a, a post-colonial world that is non-aligned, non-aligned from what? Separated from what? Where am I? Separated from, from what? Non-aligned post-colonial world separated from this westernized identity and control. Because that they inaugurated at the Bandung Conference in 1955. 1944, they had the, the United Nations. Who were there? The most powerful countries the former colonial part, forming, reordering the world in their own eyes. So by 1955, nationalists, post this post-colonial, former colonized people who had this dream of a third world, who were absent from the 1944 decision-making, they said they had their own conference. Okay, yes, the Bandung Conference, like they had the United Nations, they had the United Nations World Conference, then, it, then the post-colonial country, um, the former colonized countries, they had their conference in 1955, the Bandung Conference. Okay, their own conference. But where is that dream now? Where is that dream of that new world? They all formulated their own independent countries and became part of that United Nations, a nation with, with strategy that, was, that was, was reordering the world in their own interest and for their, for their own interest and for themselves. Whatever happened to the Bandon Conference? What is its position in the world? What credibility does it have today? How active is this? Is the band on this? Is this 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 the how active are they? This non aligned post colonial. Who can claim that dream now? No, they start organization of American states. But, anyways, who can claim that dream now? Did it was this did that dream was it replaced by a Caribbean conference called the Caribbean community? Was it replaced by an organization, American state, which is now trying to disrupt the Caribbean community? Who can claim that dream now? Who still waits in the anti-chamber anti of history? 
Did Fanon, did Fanon's ideas die with the decline and dissolution of the black power movement in America? Buried with Steve Biko in South Africa? Or were they born again when the Berlin Wall was dismantled and the new South Africa took its place on the world stage? Questions, questions, ellipses, dot, 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 ellipses. As we catch the religiosity in Fanon's language of revolutionary wrath, the last shall be first. The almighty body of violence rearing up and run it together with its description of the widening circle of national unity as reaching the boiling point in a way that is reminiscent of a religious brotherhood, a church of a mystical doctrine. We find ourselves both forewarned and wary of the, eth of the, the ethno-nationalist, the ethno-nationalist religious conflicts of our own time. The religious conflicts of our own times. We talk about, I talk, I, I talk about um, Garveyism and I even critique Garveyism as, as part of this imperialist structure. And even talk about George Padmore, George Padmore, um, uh, was George, George Padmore um, nationalism as against Garvey's or Garveyite nationalism. What kind of nationalism Garvey wanted? What kind of nationalism that um, George Padmore promoted? Okay. We find ourselves both forewarned and wary of the ethno-nationalist religious conflicts of our own times. When we hear Fanon say that for the people, only fellow nationalists, nationals are ever, are ever owned the truth. We're talking about, this is, this is powerful, man. This is deep. I can't read anymore because we have, run, we have completely run out of time. It goes on and on and on. I, I'm gonna end this Fanon. I'm gonna end right here by saying, the, the colonized man, the colonized, underdeveloped man is today a political creature in the most global sense. Fanon writes in The Wretched of the Earth, and it is my purpose almost half a century later to ask what might be saved from Fanon's ethics and politics of decolonization to help us reflect on globalization in our own sense of the term. Because he never experienced globalization when he was writing what he was writing. Yet, what he was, I said to you, Fanon was a beyond his years because that's exactly what happened when you speed further, speed on further on to half a century later. Homi Baba writes in the foreword of the translated version of Wretched of the Earth, the foreword, which was translated by Phil, um, Philcock, Richard Philcox. He said, it must seem ironic. It must seem ironic. Irony, it must seem ironic. Even absurd at first, to search for associations and intersections between decolonization and globalization. Talk about decolonization and globalization. Parallels will be pushing the analogy. When decolonization had the dream of a third world of free post-colonial post -colonial nations, that was the dream firmly on its horizon whereas globalization gazes at the nation through the back mirror as it speeds towards the strategic 
denationalization of state sovereignty. The global aspirations of third world national, national thinking belong to the internationalist tradition of socialism, Marxism, humanism. Your, this, is, this course is in the humanities. Whereas the dominant forces of contemporary globalization tend to subscribe to free market ideas and enshrine ideologies of neoliberal technocrat elites, elitism. Globalization propagates world made up of virtual transnational domains and wired communities that live vividly through webs and connectivities online. In what way then can the once colonized woman or man become figures of instructions for our own global entry? What time is it? Wait, class has ended? Uh, yes, sir. And nobody said anything. There's some sure, people. What does this mean, sir? How, how, how many people are still in the class? Um, eight, eight persons. This is what I don't like. I'm telling you that. <laughs> people just leave the class and don't say, hey, sir, it's 10 o'clock. I gotta go. <laughs> I find that to be quite disrespectful. I am telling you that. No, I'm being, I'm being honest. And no one could have said to me, hey, guy, um, sir, class has ended. And, you know, I sometimes, because my screen is on screen share and it's it blocked. So I was, was going to say, but, but Trump said that you're still, um, I, I didn't want to disturb you, sir. So I didn't say I, anything. Because, I'm well, I hope you, you're listening, so I guess that's the reason why I, I love oh, you. guys must be enjoying the class. So <laughs> I, I cannot believe that you guys, I need, what I'm, okay, when, if, I can I cannot see the time because I'm on I'm sharing my screen and it was bold. It was like it took it took up the whole it was it was maximized and so I didn't realize that it was so at the time oh and I didn't even realize my clock was an, is an hour behind. So um I didn't oh. realize that it was no, we still have 10 people on here, but I um we I'm gonna wrap up now. We only have one more week left, and I really let me wrap up my final point then because Okay, sir. I was going to make a powerful point. Um, um, I want to make the point. There's a um, uh, I wrote an article about something very important. Uh, there's something I want to share with you guys. There is um, something I want to share with you guys. If I say to you, if I tell a quiet group, if I say to a group, don't, don't everybody speak all at once? Oh, okay, let's talk about, um, don't everybody speak at once? And or, or coming home to a big mess and saying, it's, a, it's great to be back coming home to a big mess and saying, it's great to be, to be back. Or telling a rude customer to have a nice day. Or walking into an empty theater and asking, it's too crowded. 
What am I? What is the? What are those? What are those? What am I talking about? Irony. You ever hear about? You ever hear about dramatic irony? What is dramatic irony? Next week class, I'm gonna read from a presentation, a paper I wrote on irony. But it's very important to, to, to what we are studying because talk about Greek irony, the expression of one's meaning. If you if you go, go if you go and check it in, it's a it's a meaning. A dramatic irony is you're watching a movie. And the the but but one of the actor the actor is about to go, one of the actors are about one of the one of the characters they're about to go into a room and the killer is in the room with a knife. The killer doesn't, the character they doesn't know the killer is in the room with a knife. But you know, you know. And you say, no, don't, oh my God, don't go in the room. Oh, wow, 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 oh my God. Yo, don't go there. Wow, 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 oh my God. That is dramatic irony. That The irony is you already know. You're watching the movie. But you know, you know what's going to happen next. You know that there is somebody in the room waiting for this, for this, for the, for the character. You already know. But he does not know and he's about to walk in the room. To, that's dramatic irony. So it speaks to, it is the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite. Again, the irony. And I'm, we're going to talk about Greek irony next week, just quickly, maybe for like 15 minutes. And I'm going to share something with you about it. It's very important. Talking about when you read V.S. VS when you read V.S. Nepal, you know what the irony is? People go away with an Meet with meanings and intention which was not meant by the original by the by vs nepal <laughs> see what i'm talking about a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result it's a literary technique i'm going to talk about that i wrote an article about that i'm going to share that with you and it's where it's, in, it's originally used in Greek tragedy. Like if you read the Iliad, can you see my, can, Homer, the Iliad? By which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. Same thing when I talk about dramatic irony. Now, what did I say in this book just now? What I mean, what did I read just as I wrap up, as I wrap up this segment? It's very important because I will ask you this particular section in the exam. I'm telling you this, this will be in your exam. And this is why I want you to give me five minutes because I've already started writing the exam about to submit it. It must seem ironic. And he, notice I said the colonized underdeveloped man is today a political creature in the most global sense of the term. I said to you, if the Caribbean people, the Caribbean nationalists realized what was, what was happening and brewing, if they knew what happened in 1944, okay, 
or if they knew what happened, what was going to happen by 1970, yes? Globalization happening. If they had known that, and don't, maybe they would not have made, arranged the kind of independence or go it alone independent or whatever the case might be. And I ask you, where is that Bandung spirit? Where is that Bandung drive of, a, of a, the dream of a third world, of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a free world, of non-aligned post-colonial third world? The non-aligned, where is that dream now? That Bandung dream? Bandung spirit embroiled at times with a desire for wayward modernist art. That Homi Baba answered it. The wayward spirit the wayward modernist art, oh, sorry, um, embroiled at the time. The, the, you know what, the embroiling had become, has spilled over now. The embro she said, she said uh, 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 um, the post-colonial drive towards the new horizon of a third world of free nations, the Bandung spirit embroiled at times, at times with a desire for the wayward modernist art and literature of Europe that was so much a part of the world of the Western Indian bourgeoisie. It's like the nationalist of then, the nationalist became the bourgeoisie, the new bourgeoisie of the new world, which was part of the Bandung spirit. But now they realize that they now form the bourgeoisie, they have pushed it to the side. In a sense, that was one of that's the argument. That's what the and or that wayward drive has taken a hold of the entire experience. This waywardness. That okay, and there is a question again. It must be ironic, ambivalent, paradoxical, or whatever the case might be, dramatic, even absurd to search for associations and intersections between colonization and globalization. Parallels will be pushing the analogy, parallels, parallels will be pushing the analogy. What analogy? When decolonization had the dream, had the dream, decolonization, what's decolonization? Hmm? You know what decolonization is, the process of freeing countries of colonial powers. When decolonization had the dream of a third world, not really a third world, because I, dis, I, I, I do not like the word third world, so I'm going to change it. When decolonization had the dream of an empowered world, global south world, of free, we're ending now, of free post-colonial nations, firmly on its horizons. Whereas, remember enough, remember enough, look, we're ending, this is the last point that I will ever make before I end. Remember enough, the irony, it is ironic. And I, talk, and, I, and I talk about negative experience of contrasts, negative experience of contrast, it's the irony here. The irony is what? The negative experience of contrast. He leads from, he leads from imperialist country, or uh, I don't uh, Martinique, Algeria, Libya, where finding you know France, America. It doesn't matter where you go from the global sir? to the global north. You gotta go. Okay. All yes, right, sir. Okay, but need the last one. One minute. One minute. 
you go from the global south to the global north, you think there is change, you are in the same position. Second class. There's nowhere, there's no escape. So it seems, it must seem ironic according to Omiba, uh, according to Hafa, based on look, I'm looking at it, looking, uh, interpreting the statement, the colonized man, the colonized underdeveloped man is today a political creature in the most global sense of the term. It's talking about what? The negative experiences of contrast. Who talks about that? Schillebeck, the theologian, is he not? It is, an, it is a kind of dramatic irony that has come to characterize our experience of independence. Yes, it's, a, it's like a drama. It must seem ironic, even absurd at first to search for association. Whereas the dream of, the, when the decolonization, when, when decolonization had the dream of a third world of free post-colonial nations firmly on its horizon, whereas globalization gazes at the nation through the back mirror as it speeds towards the strategic, as it speeds towards the strategic denationalization of state sovereignty, denationalization of state, globalization race towards what? The denationalization, that's what globalization is about, the denationalization of state sovereignty. But what is nationalism about? Nationalism is about state sovereignty. So we, we had a dream for self-state sovereignty, but then here comes globalization. That's the irony. But in effect, was a strategy. Guys, this is powerful. This is, this is like food, man. This is powerful. This is powerful. We will end class like that. When we come back, you guys can read up some more on, um, you guys, yeah, okay, okay, Sasha. You guys can read up some more on um, what's this? On um, let me share my screen because let me tell you uh, the next class. Let me see where we are at on this PowerPoint. God, we're so behind. Let me see where we are at. Um, PowerPoint. Did you see? Let me see where we are at in the left. Where we have what we have left now. So we will the next class. We will go to Jean Paul Sartre, and then after some Jean Paul Sartre. Um, we will go to, um, uh, existentialism. We go from there and this tells you the PowerPoint to give you a little bit description. He's a psychiatrist, blah, blah, blah. Then we go to Jean-Paul Sartre, just quickly, briefly, he's not important. And then we go to Walter Rodney. We have Walter Rodney left. I have to do Walter Rodney. At the next class, we will go to Walter Rodney. And then after we, after that, We go to, now we did that already. That's the last lecture right there. I'm going to do that. Okay. All right. Um, we will do, we will have a discussion on corruption. And I have this PowerPoint slide, which goes up to 66. And we just finished. We just finished slide. We just finished slide twenty-eight, and we have sixty-six slides, and um, and and corruption is not even on it. <laughs>
But what um, the Trevor Man will come up to, and we, I'm going to publish this video hopefully by weekend. I'm going to try and release them back to back to back to back. I'm going to try and release these tonight, the, the two last week, and and then of course, and we have two this week. Okay. Um, but thank you guys, and I hope you have a great week. I hope you guys are working on your life and debt. And as I said to one student, ask if what if they can um, if they can well. Um, if they have to do the essay, the essay is a must. The essay, the final essay paper is a must. 25 pages, the group work essay is a must. Um, and then the reflection paper, interaction paper on life and debt. Um, some people are saying, do we have to do that? And I'm saying what we need to do, yes, do it as a group work. But what you could do is you can you could use your imagination and highlight some of the key com concepts that speaks to what we are doing here. If your interaction, no, you take whatever slant you want. You can inter, in, you can interact with the film, you can interact with a speaker, you can interact with a point that you will utilize. You are going to build on in your twenty-five page essay to make it easier for you. So, some of your reflections on the film um, could include some of your part of your your final essay paper. Yeah, there's a way around it so as to minimize that, minimize any extra work. Okay, that's one of the ways you can do it. Okay, guys. Um, sir. Mm -hmm. I just took out a timetable for exam, and I realized that on the twenty fourth, um, they have a Caribbean thought exam. The first exam is Caribbean thought exam. And I, I think Olander. I think I saw theology as well. No, sorry, social. Theology is it Tuesday, so they, okay. they have like a week left before. Uh, we'll talk with the theology student tomorrow about that. Oh, thanks for giving me an update. And then, yes. of course, Caribbean thought. Usually, I do a quiz. I send out a quiz and have you guys complete the quiz. So I'm gonna also do the same thing with what I did with the last. But I'm gonna do a quiz, send out a quiz, and just um do the quiz and so, send it back. Yeah. So it's better get on the quiz this week, and then again send it back to you by Saturday Sunday. So you can be marked by Monday. I can go through it. Yes, no, but I don't want them to be distracted because I want them to still work. Okay, fine, we could do that. But so the uh, Monday and Thursday's class and then exams are the following Monday. The following Monday. Okay. They will have, have enough time for the, to do it to do the, um, the quiz. Okay, okay, fine. I'll do yes. That's thank you for telling me. And some of the questions on it will be couched in the um in the videos because I really wanted to go back and rewatch some of the points that we have made. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys. What good. And um, we'll talk next week. All right. All right. So good night. Yeah, man. Hold on, hold on. How do I maximize this? Am I still sharing my screen? Oh, I didn't realize. Stop share the screen. All right. There we go. And now we can end.